Welcome to Curated Conversations from the Center for Strategic and International Studies, bringing you the best events each week from the world's number one defense and national security think tank. To explore the hundreds of events we host each year, visit us at CSIS.org. Good afternoon. Hello and welcome to the Center for Strategic and International Studies. You know, I have to tell you, my, my heart and my mind is a little distracted today because I'm thinking about Hurricane Irma described as the most powerful Atlantic Ocean hurricane ever recorded. It's about to tear through the Caribbean, or it is right now, which is where I once lived. And at the same time, we have Texans who are cleaning up and assessing the damage of Hurricane Harvey. And I bring this up because we can't stop a hurricane, but famine is completely preventable. And I, I want to start with the point of, while I decided to use the phrase for famines for our event title, for our Twitter hashtag, which is on our screen and I encourage you to use, and even for the title of a piece that I published today, what I also encourage you to read, I want to start by being very clear and cautious with our language because there are four countries that are on the brink of famine. It is a global food insecurity crisis of historic proportions, and it warrants much more attention than it certainly has received. The United Nations did declare famine in South Sudan in February of this year, and then they lifted it in June. But the situation there, as well as in the other three countries, is still nothing short of catastrophic. So for me, there are 20.7 million reasons for us to be here today. Because that's the number of people that are starving or on the risk of starving in Yemen, Somalia, South Sudan, and Nigeria. The United Nations has called this the largest humanitarian crisis since the creation of the United Nations. And I'll leave it to our panel of experts to dive into the details, but I wanted to lay out three key points that I felt important to emphasize. The first one is that conflict is the common denominator here. Violence and protracted conflicts have not only helped cause this devastation, but they're also hindering the effective humanitarian response. Starvation is being used as a war tactic. The second point is that the ripple effect of severe food insecurity is wide and long-lasting. Yemen is suffering from the world's largest cholera outbreak right now, with over 600,000 cases of the deadly disease. But it's children who will suffer the most from malnutrition that causes irreversible physical and mental stunting, and from a lack of education opportunities that will leave behind a lost generation. My third point is about the Trump administration. I think it's important that the Trump administration should very much be praised for its leadership in providing more than its fair share in humanitarian funding. But so far, I feel like it has shown a lack of leadership in terms of diplomacy and development. The US is the largest donor in humanitarian funding for the four famines, committing over 1.8 billion in fiscal year 2017. And we should be proud of that, I'm proud of that. But strategic, long-term investments through foreign aid and diplomacy are equally important, particularly if we're going to prevent these crises from reoccurring. So part of the purpose of today's event 
It's to raise awareness and understanding, certainly, of the humanitarian crisis we're witnessing, but it's also to have a deeply technical discussion around fragility, resilience, and the role of international development. How can U.S. leadership and development investments break the cycle of instability and famine? And why is it in our best interest to do so? Before we begin, I want to take a minute to thank Comonix International for their partnership that made this event possible, made today's event possible, but also for their leadership and foresight in helping us craft this conversation. You know, they're one of the largest international development companies, and they cover a range of things from agriculture to health to democracy and much more. But what I like about Comonix is they understand that development dimensions cannot be siloed, and I know that that will come out in our conversations today. Thank you, Comonix. Now I'd like to invite our panelists to join me onto the stage. And thank you all for coming out in the rain. I know in DC that sort of stops everything, so we're glad that you're here. To do introductions, I know you have their bios in your hands, but I want to talk a little bit about our experts that we have joining us today. When I was thinking about who do I want to come and talk about this, I really wanted someone who was an academic, an expert on this issue. It was really clearly, when you do any sort of homework, that the right person is Alex DeWall. He's a researcher, he's an activist, he's an author. He's a critic. He's one of the greatest thinkers on this topic. He's written more than a dozen books, many of them that focus on the politics of the Horn of Africa, the criminal aspects of famine, as well as the disaster relief industry. I encourage you, if you haven't, to read his extended essay called Operation Starvation that was published this summer. I enjoyed reading that today, Alex. <laughs> Today was the first day of classes at Tufts University, and I'm grateful that Alex was able to travel down to DC for our event. I'd like to think that he is still teaching today. It's just to a much larger classroom here. After Alex, we have Kareen Graff, and Kareen has a really unique blend of professional experience. What I like about Kareen is that she has had a lot of experience in the US government. She's held senior leadership positions at USAID, at State Department, and the National Security Council. But she's also a research analyst and a policy wonk. You know, she has experience at Brookings Institute as well as currently with the US Institute of Peace. Her areas of expertise include peace building, fragile states, and countering violent extremism. And last, we have Eric Redding. Eric is from Comonix. He's a global development practitioner who has decades of experience implementing international programs, international development programs on the ground. If I listed all the countries he has been in and all the areas he has worked in, we would go well over time. Um, but I will say he has extensive experience in the Middle East and North Africa and has worked a lot on everything from agriculture to post-conflict recovery to economic growth. So you have a great mind sitting here at this table and I'm very excited to get started and we'll begin with Alex. Alex, tell us what we need to know about the four famines. Thank you very much. Well, I, I think that the main thing we need to know is that this is not the biggest crisis since World War II. It's not. And, and, and in many ways, actually, the, the, the picture is, is, the big picture is much more rosy than dark. So let me explain. 
Um, 90 years ago, the, the English historian Richard Tawney used the image of a, a, a man standing up to his neck in water to describe the Chinese peasant. He said, the Chinese peasant is, is desperately poor. And he's like a man standing up, permanently standing up to his neck in water. And just a small ripple will be enough to drown him. And that small ripple would, would be characteristically in the case of, of, of China, a famine brought about by a production or market failure or some sort of disruption. The implication was that the, the major causes of the, the, the precarity of that peasant were structural and political, but the immediate causes would be natural calamity. Well, today, 90 or so years on, the water has dropped considerably. Not only the Chinese peasant, but the, the poor people around the world actually are not up to their necks in water. It takes a lot more than a ripple to drown these people. And what we see is that in the 100 or so years from the 1870s to the 1970s, about 10 million people died every year in famines. Um, the, uh, sorry, about 10 million people died every decade in, 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 in famines. In the last 20 years, that number has been 5% of that. We've seen historically, over the last generation, a 95% reduction in levels of famine mortality. That is a historic achievement, which has not been reversed. The situation we face today, the four famines are very serious, but they are nothing comparable to what was happening in, 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 in China in the, in, un, un, under Mao Zedong, in, in, in the Soviet Union under Stalin, even in Ethiopia uh, 30 years ago. These, these are smaller in scale and in lethality. The historic significance is that the decade-on-decade decade decline in numbers of famines and lethality of famines has stopped. And that is a serious cause for concern because things could, be, could and in fact are in a small way beginning to go in the wrong direction. So why and how is the water level dropped, as it were? Food today, food is much more plentiful. Food markets are much better and more integrated. Food prices are much lower. Even the food crisis, the global food crisis, so-called 2011, and its earlier manifestation, 2008, at its height, the food prices there were much lower than they were in the previous food crises of the early 1970s and, and the late 1940s. People are less poor, uh, particularly, of course, in Asia. More than half the famine deaths over the last 150 years have been in Asia, almost half of them in China alone, only 10% in, in, in Africa. The elimination of famine from Asia is, 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 is one of the big, um, big factors. Health systems are far better. The great drivers of famine mortality in the past were communicable and epidemic diseases, waterborne diseases, infectious diseases. The improvement of global health systems has reduced mortality in, in, in famines. The humanitarian response has, has, has more latterly, more recently been important. And the politics are better. We have more democratic systems, more open systems, more responsive systems. The great totalitarian systems in the Soviet Union, in China, in, 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 in uh, Cambodia, are history. We have one, of course, in North Korea, where there was a terrible famine 20 years ago. There may be another one uh, in, in, in the near future. It is harder to inflict famine than it was before. Mao and Stalin 
uh, Pol Pot could do it relatively, in a relatively straightforward way. Today's rulers cannot. So where do the threats of famine come from today? And I would suggest there's, that there's two things we need to pay attention to. One is, as it were, the freak wave, that combination of different circumstances that come together at a particular moment to create a much bigger wave than a ripple, which could drown our, our, our peasant, who is in other respects relatively secure. And Somalia, 2011, was an example of that, the first uh, famine of, 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 of this century to date, the most severe one. Five factors came together to cause a, an eminently preventable famine. There was a production shock. There was a harvest failure. There was a food price shock, the global uh, food uh, price hike of that year. There were disruptions to markets caused by al-Shabaab and by the government. There was conflict and corruption. And there was an a inex inexcusable delay in responding due in part, I have to say, to the slowness of the US administration in finding a workaround for the provisions of the Patriot Act that prohibit and criminalize material support for terrorist groups. Now, everyone who has worked in a, in a situation of, of humanitarian relief knows there is leakage. And, but if e, even the smallest amount of leakage is criminalized, then um, humanitarian agencies cannot operate. And there was a lethal delay caused by the former administration. And I think finding a permanent workaround and guaranteed workaround for those provisions in the Patriot Act is one of the urgent tasks that we face today. So today, this is not the worst crisis since 1945, but uh, an interruption in a positive trend. I hope it's an interruption. I hope it is not a historic reversal. As people around the world have become less vulnerable to famine, the element of political decision in creating famine has become more important. The element of supply-side shock of, of, of harvest failure has become less important. The element of deliberate political decision has become more important. Famines are man-made, and the gender insensitive language is deliberate. There are no women-made famines. These are man-made events. The verb to starve, properly speaking, is transitive. Tran starvation is something that people do to one another. It is not something that happens. Um, Hunger and disease can come about through, through natural adversity and poverty, outright starvation, such as we see in Yemen, in the enclaves of Syria, uh, in parts of South Sudan. That is a deliberate man-made action. So we have four famines in places where we have a combination of, of, of background effects, as in, as, uh, as in Somalia, but particularly deliberate use of, of, of famine, of starvation as a weapon, plus one. The plus one, in my view, being Syria, where the Assad government, in particular, has used the, the military tactic of deliberately starving uh, enclaves to force them to surrender. Something very similar, disturbingly similar, is happening in Yemen. Yemen is the famine scandal of our times. It puts all the others in the shade, partly because it is being inflicted by our allies with our, the collective consent of our governments here and, and, and in Europe. My proposal, just to conclude, is that we need to criminalize famine and starvation. 
the lawyers will tell, tell us quite correctly that the provisions for outlawing starvation as, as, as an act of war or as a crime against humanity are there in the law. An act of extermination, an act of persecution, uh, etc. However, they are not highlighted in that law. No one has made it a priority. Just as a, a, a few years ago, gender activists came together to say, yes, of course rape is a crime, but it's a crime in war that no one cares about. Let's make it a crime that people care about. In the same way, I think we need to make starvation a crime that we care about. And, and, and I think that the time to start saying so is now. Thank you. Thank you so much, Alex Corrine. Thank you, and thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I want to build on what Alex just said a little bit and also uh, put the famines in some historical context. And I, I want to drill, drill down a little bit on the role of global development um, in how we address these uh, crises. Um, and in that respect, I want to make really three overarching points. Um, the first one, picking up on what Alex just said about the importance of putting the famines into perspective, um, is that generally speaking, uh, global development and the investments that donors in the United States have made over recent decades are kind of an inoculation against uh, the types of crises that we're seeing in these uh, four countries right now, um, against future crises. Um, and uh, I say this really for, uh, for four reasons. One is I think as poverty rates decline um, and we've seen millions of people lifted out of poverty, we've seen improvements on multiple dimensions of well-being in recent decades, um, including in particular maternal and child health, literacy and nutrition. And as poverty rates decline, we can expect households um, across developing countries and poor countries to better cope with the effects of a shock like a severe drought. Um, it's a long-term investment, obviously, and result of long-term investments, so it doesn't happen overnight. But I think this is a trend that we can expect to see, hoping, as Alex said, that uh, we don't see a, a historic reversal with what's going on right now. Um, and so I, I don't want to suggest that humanitarian assistance will ever be eliminated. I don't think that would be accurate. Um, and I think particularly with climate change, change and the expectation that shocks will become um, more and more severe. But I do think it's worth emphasizing the role of global development here in helping to make the conditions for famines to occur to become less prevalent. Um, and then the second reason, more specifically, that I want to focus on um, the long-term impact of, of development on uh, emergencies like this is that I think as uh, national incomes rise in the developing world, um, we also see that um, these countries, poor countries, will become uh, less at risk of devolving into armed conflict. So I say this, there's a strong correlation, as I'm sure everyone in this audience is aware, between armed conflict and poverty and underdevelopment, um, which is why war is often described by political economists as development in reverse. Um, and that strong relationship, I think, is, is borne out by a lot of evidence. Um, the World Bank says that uh, countries that were affected by a violent conflict at some point in the period between 1981 and 2005 had a poverty rate that was 20% higher than peaceful countries at comparable levels of income. Um, the gap was even higher for countries that were affected by repeated cycles of violence. 
Um, so that's not to say either that poverty causes conflict, um, but that poor countries tend to be at higher risk. Um, uh, the relationship between armed conflicts and humanitarian emergencies is also tight. There's an estimated, the World Bank now estimates that 80% of all humanitarian needs are driven by armed conflicts today. Um, and countries with high rates of food insecurity uh, and armed conflict also have the highest outward migration of refugee flows in the world. So clearly there's a nexus here between underdevelopment, instability, um, and humanitarian uh, emergencies, and I think it helps to explain this trend that uh, Alex has called attention to. Um, and then a third reason global development, I think, is helping to reduce vulnerability to future crises is increasingly donor agencies like USAID um, and others are deliberately targeting uh, their development programs to building resilience um, in countries where the risks of droughts and shocks are greatest and where we know drought emergencies occur repeatedly. Um, the move to really prioritize resilience in development started uh, in earnest after the 2011-2012 drought that Alex mentioned in the Horn of Africa and in the Sahel. Um, and since then, in places like northern Kenya, we've seen that the ability of households, of communities, and of the government to cope with drought-related adversity has measurably improved. So these development uh, investments are starting to have an impact. Again, it's slow, it's small steps, and the results will really show in the longer term, but it's starting to change the way these countries are able to uh, weather this kind of crisis. Um, and then finally, one of the most important reasons from my perspective that development is gonna become even more important with time in reducing future risks um, is on account of the move in the development community to use programming more effectively and deliberately um, in coordination with diplomacy and in coordination with military engagement to mitigate state fragility. Um, and this is critical in my view because the focus on fragility really gets at the root causes of the types of crises and the instability that we're seeing in the Horn and then in the Sahel and elsewhere. And so it offers the hope that we can work and development agencies can work to prevent deadly and dangerous situations from erupting in the future. So what is fragility? Um, obviously it's a term that's used a lot. Um, as Alex discussed, I think fragility fundamentally has to do with political dysfunction. And it describes governance challenges facing, uh, facing a country. Um, the US Institute of Peace defines fragility as a breakdown in the social contract between governments and their citizens which can increase the risk of violent conflict and sap states and communities of their resilience to disruptive shocks. So if we wanna reduce the risk of future internal conflicts or crises, our engagements really have to focus on strengthening that relationship between governments and their citizens and targeting the weakest links in that relationship in the particular context. So uh, to be a little bit more granular about this, whether it's social economic marginalization of ethnic groups um, or geographic regions in a country, whether it's a government's limited geographic reach and failure to deliver essential services, or whether it's a government's capture by self-serving elites that are eroding the social contract, these really are the challenges that development programs and our engagements have to focus on in the affected countries to break the cycle um, over time. And in this regard, the New Deal for Engagement in Fragile, Fragile States, um, an international agreement signed by the United States, um, other donors, as well as fragile state governments in 2011, was really helpful in laying out best practices for mitigating fragility, including um, uh, 
principles like having country ownership of their own development agendas, um, investment in and support for inclusive peace processes, um, and focusing on transparent financial management and service delivery systems. Uh, much more, I think, needs to be done to implement uh, that framework, which, which is sound at the country level. But I think the bottom line is it's really a, a roadmap for more effective whole-of-government donor engagement to support countries that are trying to transition out of conflicts and fragility. And um, I think it's important to also note that the type of uh, development assistance that I'm referring to really builds on the technical expertise of uh, donor agencies about what works. And so even though this, this assistance really needs to be coordinated with um, our international engagement through diplomatic and defense channels, the types of investments I'm talking about hinge on really specific expertise and the know-how of our uh, development practitioners. So for all these reasons, because poverty alleviation tends, tends to make people less vulnerable to shocks and to wars, because USAID and other donors are deliberately targeting vulnerability to shocks and the sources of fragility through innovative programming, I think development can really help um, to reduce the, the risks over time. I don't want to oversell the point. Um, investing in resilience and, and mitigating fragility doesn't obviate and will not obviate the need for humanitarian assistance, particularly in the context of climate change. And again, these really are long-term investments that take time. But I do think um, long-term, evidence-driven, results-oriented development investments have a critical role to play here, and so I, I, I'm really glad that CSIS is shining a spotlight on um, these longer-term factors. The second point I want to make is about the role of development in um, reduce, not only in reducing the risk of future crises, but also um, in our engagements in the crises uh, that we see and that, that are here today um, and the emergency situations that we're faced with right now. Um, development programs, I think, have a place alongside diplomacy and defense to help build peace and foundations for transitions out of conflict and fragility, even in places like Somalia, which are still very much in conflict. Um, although, of course, how you sequence development with other interventions and the types of programs um, that are appropriate depends on the, the context. Um, this is relevant uh, not only, I think, in the Horn of, of Africa and in the Sahel, which we're talking a lot about, but in other places where we're also seeing deepening humanitarian emergencies that are con very much conflict-driven um, in places like the Democratic Republic of the Congo and Central African Republic. Um, the early developments that, uh, I'm sorry, the early development investments that donors are beginning to make um, as part of peace-building efforts in countries like Somalia are uh, a good example of what I'm talking about. So I'm gonna focus in on Somalia for a minute. Um, US support for the African Union peacekeeping mission in Somalia, the airstrikes against um, Al-Shabaab extremists have garnered a lot of press attention. But it's highly unlikely that the battleground gains against extremists can be sustained without further peace-building efforts. Um, standing up effective and accountable institutions, consolidating the political, nascent political structures that are emerging, and addressing the basic needs of vulnerable Somali communities. Um, and while uh, Somalia remains one of the most fragile states in the world and is highly vulnerable to droughts, I think what we're seeing there now is that all the elements for taking peace-building efforts to the next phase are in place. 
Um, in addition to holding relatively peaceful presidential elections this year in line with its commitments to an internationally mediated political transition, uh, the government has finalized and is beginning to implement development political and security sector strategies that really reflect some of the best practices for navigating out of fragility that I mentioned earlier. And for its part, the international community is, is beginning to line up behind those commitments um, and donors are adjusting their aid portfolios to support um, these objectives that are being laid out by the government um, through programs to increase legitimacy and citizen participation in the political process at the local level, uh, programs to support the federal government as it seeks to establish accountable revenue management systems in a country where obviously corruption has been rampant, to name just two examples. Um, in addition, uh, USAID in particular has also been at the forefront of development investments in stabilization and the stabilizing of communities liberated from the grip of al-Shabaab, which has been critical to both help maintain the gains against these groups, as well as to create the space for political process to unfold and the peace building to proceed. So I think even in a situation um, like Somalia, which, which uh, I acknowledge is still very precarious, I think the kinds of early investments that donors are making in peace building and stabilization and resilience are key to the success of our diplomatic efforts to, reserve, to resolve the political disputes, as well as to our military and peace building efforts to marginalize groups like al-Shabaab and other potential spoilers. And before I end, I just wanted to turn, kind of take a step back and just ask the question, which I'm sure no one in this room probably asked, but is still being asked too often, about why should we care about these situations um, and emergencies and crises like the ones we see in these four countries. Um, and I think uh, we've already heard examples uh, in the conversation here about uh, the national security implications of these crises um, for the United States, for countries in Europe, when conflicts fester and devolve into humanitarian or regional crises. Um, and the one case that I Good afternoon. Hello and welcome to the Center for Strategic and International Studies. You know, I have to tell you, my, my heart and my mind is a little distracted today because I'm thinking about Hurricane Irma, described as the most powerful Atlantic Ocean hurricane ever recorded. It's about to tear through the Caribbean, or it is right now, which is where I once lived. And at the same time, we have Texans who are cleaning up and assessing the damage of Hurricane Harvey. And I bring this up because we can't stop a hurricane, but famine is completely preventable. And I, I want to start with the point of, while I decided to use the phrase for famines for our event title, for our Twitter hashtag, which is on our screen and I encourage you to use, and even for the title of a piece that I published today, what I also encourage you to read, I want to start by being very clear and cautious with our language because there are four countries that are on the brink of famine. It is a global food insecurity crisis of historic proportions, and it warrants much more attention than it certainly has received. The United Nations did declare famine in South Sudan in February of this year, and then they lifted it in June. But the situation there, as well as in the other three countries, is still nothing short of catastrophic. So for me, there are 20.7 million reasons for us to be here today. Because that's the number of people that are starving or on the risk of starving in Yemen, Somalia, South Sudan, and Nigeria.
The United Nations has called this the largest humanitarian crisis since the creation of the United Nations. And I'll leave it to our panel of experts to dive into the details, but I wanted to lay out three key points that I felt important to emphasize. The first one is that conflict is the common denominator here. Violence and protracted conflicts have not only helped cause this devastation, but they're also hindering the effective humanitarian response. Starvation is being used as a war tactic. The second point is that the ripple effect of severe food insecurity is wide and long-lasting. Yemen is suffering from the world's largest cholera outbreak right now, with over 600,000 cases of the deadly disease. But it's children who will suffer the most from malnutrition that causes irreversible physical and mental stunting, and from a lack of education opportunities that will leave behind a lost generation. My third point is about the Trump administration. I think it's important that the Trump administration should very much be praised for its leadership in providing more than its fair share in humanitarian funding. But so far, I feel like it has shown a lack of leadership in terms of diplomacy and development. The US is the largest donor in humanitarian funding for the four famines, committing over 1.8 billion in fiscal year 2017. And we should be proud of that, I'm proud of that. But strategic, long-term investments through foreign aid and diplomacy are equally important, particularly if we're going to prevent these crises from reoccurring. So part of the purpose of today's event is to raise awareness and understanding, certainly, of the humanitarian crisis we're witnessing, but it's also to have a deeply technical discussion around fragility, resilience, and the role of international development. How can U.S. leadership and development investments break the cycle of instability and famine? And why is it in our best interest to do so? Before we begin, I want to take a minute to thank Comonix International for their partnership that made this event possible, made today's event possible, but also for their leadership and foresight in helping us craft this conversation. You know, they're one of the largest international development companies, and they cover a range of things from agriculture to health to democracy and much more. But what I like about Comonix is they understand that development dimensions cannot be siloed, and I know that that will come out in our conversations today. Thank you, Comonix. Now I'd like to inv invite our panelists to join me onto the stage. And thank you all for coming out in the rain. I know in DC that sort of stops everything, so we're glad that you're here. To do introductions, I know you have their bios in your hands, but I want to talk a little bit about our experts that we have joining us today. When I was thinking about who do I want to come and talk about this, I really wanted someone who was an academic, an expert on this issue. It was really clearly, when you do any sort of homework, that the right person is Alex DeWall. He's a researcher, he's an activist, he's an author. He's a critic. He's one of the greatest thinkers on this topic. He's written more than a dozen books, many of them that focus on the politics of the Horn of Africa, the criminal aspects of famine, as well as the disaster relief industry. 
I encourage you, if you haven't, to read his extended essay called Operation Starvation that was published this summer. I enjoyed reading that today, Alex. <laughs> today was the first day of classes at Tufts University, and I'm grateful that Alex was able to travel down to DC for our event. I'd like to think that he is still teaching today. It's just to a much larger classroom here. After Alex, we have Corrine Graff, and Corrine has a really unique blend of professional experience. What I like about Corrine is that she has had a lot of experience in the U.S. government. She's held senior leadership positions at USAID, at State Department, and the National Security Council. But she's also a research analyst and a policy wonk. You know, she has experience at Brookings Institute as well as currently with the U.S. Institute of Peace. Her areas of expertise include peace building, fragile states, and countering violent extremism. And last, we have Eric Redding. Eric is from Comonix. He's a global development practitioner who has decades of experience implementing international programs, international development programs on the ground. If I listed all the countries he has been in and all the areas he has worked in, we would go well over time. Um, but I will say he has extensive experience in the Middle East and North Africa and has worked a lot on everything from agriculture to post-conflict recovery to economic growth. So you have a great mind sitting here at this table and I'm very excited to get started and we'll begin with Alex. Alex, tell us what we need to know about the four famines. Thank you very much. Well, I, I think that the main thing we need to know is that this is not the biggest crisis since World War II. It's not. And, and, and in many ways, actually, the, the, the picture is, is, the big picture is much more rosy than dark. So let me explain. Um, 90 years ago, the, the English historian Richard Tawney used the image of a, a, a man standing up to his neck in water to describe the Chinese peasant. He said, the Chinese peasant is, is desperately poor, and he's like a man standing up, permanently standing up to his neck in water, and just a small ripple will be enough to drown him. And that small ripple would, would be, characteristically in the case of, of, of China, a famine brought about by a production or market failure or some sort of disruption. The implication was that the, the major causes of the, the, the precarity of that peasant were structural and political, but the immediate causes would be natural calamity. Well, today, 90 or so years on, the water has dropped considerably. Not only the Chinese peasant, but the, the poor people around the world actually are not up to their necks in water. It takes a lot more than a ripple to drown these people. And what we see is that in the 100 or so years from the 1870s to the 1970s, about 10 million people died every year in famines. Um, the, uh, sorry, about 10 million people died every decade in, 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 in famines. In the last 20 years, that number has been 5% of that. We've seen historically, over the last generation, a 95% reduction in levels of famine mortality. That is a historic achievement, which has not been reversed. The situation we face today, the four famines are very serious, but they are nothing comparable to what was happening in, 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 in China in the, in, un, un, under Mao Zedong, in, in, in the Soviet Union under Stalin, even in Ethiopia uh, 30 years ago. These are smaller in scale and in lethality. The historic significance is that 
the decade-on-decade decade decline in numbers of famines and lethality of famines has stopped. And that is a serious cause for concern because things could, be, could and in fact are in a small way beginning to go in the wrong direction. So why and how has the water level dropped, as it were? Food today, food is much more plentiful. Food markets are much better and more integrated. Food prices are much lower. Even the food crisis, the global food crisis, so-called 2011, and its earlier manifestation 2008, at its height, the food prices there were much lower than they were in the previous food crises of the early 1970s and, and the late 1940s. People are less poor, uh, particularly, of course, in Asia, more than Half the famine deaths over the last 150 years have been in Asia, almost half of them in China alone, only 10% in, in, in Africa. The elimination of famine from Asia is, is, is one of the big, um, big factors. Health systems are far better. The great drivers of famine mortality in the past were communicable and epidemic diseases, waterborne diseases, infectious diseases. The improvement of global health systems has reduced mortality in, in, in famines. The humanitarian response has, has, has more latterly, more recently been important. And the politics are better. We have more democratic systems, more open systems, more responsive systems. The great totalitarian systems in the Soviet Union, in China, in, 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 in uh, Cambodia, are history. We have one, of course, in North Korea, where there was a terrible famine 20 years ago. There may be another one uh, in, in, in the near future. It is harder to inflict famine than it was before. Mao and Stalin, uh, Pol Pot, could do it relatively in a relatively straightforward way. Today's rulers cannot. So where do the threats of famine come from today? And I would suggest there's, that there's two things we need to pay attention to. One is, as it were, the freak wave, that combination of different circumstances that come together at a particular moment to create a much bigger wave than a ripple, which could drown our, our, our peasant, who is, in other respects, relatively secure. And Somalia, 2011, was an example of that, the first uh, famine of, 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 of this century to date, the most severe one. Five factors came together to cause an eminently preventable famine. There was a production shock. There was a harvest failure. There was a food price shock, the global uh, food uh, price hike of that year. There were disruptions to markets caused by al-Shabaab and by the government. There was conflict and corruption. And there was a, a inex inexcusable delay in responding due in part, I have to say, to the slowness of the US administration in finding a workaround for the provisions of the Patriot Act that prohibit and criminalize material support for terrorist groups. Now, everyone who has worked in a, in a situation of, of humanitarian relief, knows there is leakage. And, but if e, even the smallest amount of leakage is criminalized, then um, humanitarian agencies cannot operate. And there was a lethal delay caused by the former administration. And I think finding a permanent workaround and guaranteed workaround for those provisions in the Patriot Act is one of the urgent tasks that we face today. So today, this is not the worst crisis since 1945, but uh, an interruption in a positive trend. I hope it's an interruption. I hope it is not a historic reversal.
As people around the world have become less vulnerable to famine, the element of political decision in creating famine has become more important. The element of supply-side shock of, of, of harvest failure has become less important. The element of deliberate political decision has become more important. Famines are man-made, and the gender insensitive language is deliberate. There are no women-made famines. These are man-made events. The verb to starve, properly speaking, is transitive. Tran starvation is something that people do to one another. It is not something that happens. Uh, hunger and disease can come about through, through natural adversity and poverty, outright starvation, such as we see in Yemen, in the enclaves of Syria, uh, in parts of South Sudan. That is a deliberate man-made action. So we have four famines in places where we have a combination of, of, of background effects, as in, as, uh, as in Somalia, but particularly deliberate use of, of, of famine, of starvation as a weapon, plus one. The plus one, in my view, being Syria, where the Assad government, in particular, has used the, the military tactic of deliberately starving uh, enclaves to force them to surrender. Something very similar, disturbingly similar, is happening in Yemen. Yemen is the famine scandal of our times. It puts all the others in the shade, partly because it is being inflicted by our allies with our the collective consent of our governments here and, and, and in Europe. My proposal, just to conclude, is that we need to criminalize famine and starvation. The lawyers will tell, tell us quite correctly that the provisions for outlawing starvation as, as, as an act of war or as a crime against humanity are there in the law. An act of extermination, an act of persecution, uh, etc. However, they are not highlighted in that law. No one has made it a priority. Just as a, a, a few years ago, gender activists came together to say, yes, of course, rape is a crime, but it's a crime in war that no one cares about. Let's make it a crime that people care about. In the same way, I think we need to make starvation a crime that we care about. And, and, and I think that the time to start saying so is now. Thank you. Thank you so much, Alex Corrine. Thank you, and thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I want to build on what Alex just said a little bit and also uh, put the famines in some historical context. And I, I want to drill, drill down a little bit on the role of global development um, in how we address these uh, crises. Um, and in that respect, I want to make really three overarching points. Um, the first one, picking up on what Alex just said about the importance of putting the famines into perspective, um, is that generally speaking, uh, global development and the investments that donors in the United States have made over recent decades are kind of an inoculation against uh, the types of crises that we're seeing in these uh, four countries right now, um, against future crises. Um, and uh, I say this really for, uh, for four reasons. One is I think as poverty rates decline, 
um, and we've seen millions of people lifted out of poverty. We've seen improvements on multiple dimensions of well-being in recent decades, um, including in particular maternal and child health, literacy, and nutrition. And as poverty rates decline, we can expect households um, across developing countries and poor countries to better cope with the effects of a shock like a severe drought. Um, it's a long-term investment, obviously, and result of long-term investments, so it doesn't happen overnight. But I think this is a trend that we can expect to see, hoping, as Alex said, that uh, we don't see a, a historic reversal with what's going on right now. Um, and so I, I don't want to suggest that humanitarian assistance will ever be eliminated. I don't think that would be accurate. Um, and I think particularly with climate change, change and the expectation that shocks will become um, more and more severe. But I do think it's worth emphasizing the role of global development here in helping to make the conditions for famines to occur to become less prevalent. Um, and then the second reason, more specifically, that I want to focus on um, the long-term impact of, of development on uh, emergencies like this is that I think as uh, national incomes rise in the developing world, um, we also see that um, these countries, poor countries, will become uh, less at risk of devolving into armed conflict. So I say this, there's a strong correlation, as I'm sure everyone in this audience is aware, between armed conflict and poverty and underdevelopment, um, which is why war is often described by political economists as development in reverse. Um, and that strong relationship, I think, is, is borne out by a lot of evidence. Um, the World Bank says that uh, countries that were affected by a violent conflict at some point in the period between 1981 and 2005 had a poverty rate that was 20% higher than peaceful countries at comparable levels of income. Um, the gap was even higher for countries that were affected by repeated cycles of violence. Um, so that's not to say either that poverty causes conflict, um, but that poor countries tend to be at higher risk. Um, uh, the relationship between armed conflicts and humanitarian emergencies is also tight. There's an estimated, the World Bank now estimates that 80% of all humanitarian needs are driven by armed conflicts today. Um, and countries with high rates of food insecurity uh, and armed conflict also have the highest outward migration of refugee flows in the world. So clearly there's a nexus here between underdevelopment, instability, um, and humanitarian uh, emergencies, and I think it helps to explain this trend that uh, Alex has called attention to. Um, and then a third reason global development, I think, is helping to reduce vulnerability to future crises is increasingly donor agencies like USAID um, and others are deliberately targeting uh, their development programs to building resilience. Um, in countries where the risks of droughts and shocks are greatest and where we know drought emergencies occur repeatedly. Um, the move to really prioritize resilience in development started uh, in earnest after the 2011-2012 drought that Alex mentioned in the Horn of Africa and in the Sahel. Um, and since then, in places like northern Kenya, we've seen that the ability of households, of communities, and of the government to cope with drought-related adversity has measurably improved. So these development uh, investments are starting to have an impact. Again, it's slow, it's small steps, and the results will really show in the longer term, but it's starting to change the way these countries are able to uh, weather this kind of crisis. Um, and then finally, one of the most important reasons from my perspective that development 
is going to become even more important with time in reducing future risks um, is on account of the move in the development community to use programming more effectively and deliberately um, in coordination with uh, diplomacy and in coordination with military engagement to mitigate state fragility. Um, and this is critical in my view because the focus on fragility really gets at the root causes of the types of crises and the instability that we're seeing in the Horn and then in the Sahel and elsewhere. And so it offers the hope that we can work and development agencies can work to prevent deadly and dangerous situations from erupting in the future. So what is fragility? Um, obviously it's a term that's used a lot. Um, as Alex discussed, I think fragility fundamentally has to do with political dysfunction. And it describes governance challenges facing, uh, facing a country. Um, the US Institute of Peace defines fragility as a breakdown in the social contract between governments and their citizens which can increase the risk of violent conflict and sap states and communities of their resilience to disruptive shocks. So if we want to reduce the risk of future internal conflicts or crises, our engagements really have to focus on strengthening that relationship between governments and their citizens and targeting the weakest links in that relationship in the particular context. So uh, to be a little bit more granular about this, whether it's social economic marginalization of ethnic groups um, or geographic regions in a country, whether it's a government's limited geographic reach and failure to deliver essential services, or whether it's a government's capture by self-serving elites that are eroding the social contract, these really are the challenges that development programs and our engagements have to focus on in the affected countries to break the cycle um, over time. And in this regard, the New Deal for Engagement in Fragile, Fragile States, um, an international agreement signed by the United States, um, other donors, as well as fragile state governments in 2011, was really helpful in laying out best practices for mitigating fragility, including um, uh, principles like having country ownership of their own development agendas, um, investment in and support for inclusive peace processes, um, and focusing on transparent financial management and service delivery systems. Uh, much more, I think, needs to be done to implement uh, that framework, which, which is sound at the country level. But I think the bottom line is it's really a, a roadmap for more effective whole of government donor engagement to support countries that are trying to transition out of conflicts and fragility. And um, I think it's important to also note that the type of uh, development assistance that I'm referring to really builds on the technical expertise of uh, donor agencies about what works. And so even though this, this assistance really needs to be coordinated with um, our international engagement through diplomatic and defense channels, the types of investments I'm talking about hinge on really specific expertise and the know-how of our uh, development practitioners. So for all these reasons, because poverty alleviation tends, tends to make people less vulnerable to shocks and to wars, because USAID and other donors are deliberately tar targeting vulnerability to shocks and the sources of fragility through innovative programming, I think development can really help um, to reduce the, the risks over time. I don't want to oversell the point. Um, investing in resilience and, and mitigating fragility doesn't obviate and will not obviate the need for humanitarian assistance, particularly in the context of climate change. And again, these really are long-term investments that take time. But I do think um, long-term, evidence-driven, results-oriented development investments have a critical role to play here, and so I, I, I'm really glad that CSIS is shining a spotlight on um, these longer-term factors. 
The second point I want to make is about the role of development in um, reduce, not only in reducing the risk of future crises, but also um, in our engagements in the crises uh, that we see and that, that are here today um, and the cr emergency situations that we're faced with right now. Um, development programs, I think, have a place alongside diplomacy and defense to help build peace and foundations for transitions out of conflict and fragility, even in places like Somalia, which are still very much in conflict. Um, although, of course, how you sequence development with other interventions and the types of programs um, that are appropriate depends on the, the context. Um, this is relevant uh, not only, I think, in the Horn of, of Africa and in the Sahel, which we're talking a lot about, but in other places where we're also seeing deepening humanitarian emergencies that are con very much conflict-driven um, in places like the Democratic Republic of the Congo and Central African Republic. Um, the early developments that, uh, I'm sorry, the early development investments that donors are beginning to make um, as part of peace-building efforts in countries like Somalia are uh, a good example of what I'm talking about. So I'm going to focus in on Somalia for a minute. Um, U.S. support for the African Union peacekeeping mission in Somalia, the airstrikes against um, al-Shabaab extremists have garnered a lot of press attention. But it's highly unlikely that the battleground gains against extremists can be sustained without further peace-building efforts. Um, standing up effective and accountable institutions, consolidating the political, nascent political structures that are emerging, and addressing the basic needs of vulnerable Somali communities. Um, and while uh, Somalia remains one of the most fragile states in the world and is highly vulnerable to droughts, I think what we're seeing there now is that all the elements for taking peace-building efforts to the next phase are in place. Um, in addition to holding relatively peaceful presidential elections this year in line with its commitments to an internationally mediated political transition, uh, the government has finalized and is beginning to implement development political and security sector strategies that really reflect some of the best practices for navigating out of fragility that I mentioned earlier. And for its part, the international community is, is beginning to line up behind those commitments um, and donors are adjusting their aid portfolios to support um, these objectives that are being laid out by the government um, through programs to increase legitimacy and citizen participation in the political process at the local level, uh, programs to support the federal government as it seeks to establish accountable revenue management systems in a country where obviously corruption has been rampant, to name just two examples. Um, in addition, uh, USAID in particular has also been at the forefront of development investments in stabilization and the stabilizing of communities liberated from the grip of al-Shabaab, which has been critical to both help maintain the gains against these groups, as well as to create the space for political process to unfold and the peace building to proceed. So I think even in a situation um, like Somalia, which, which uh, I acknowledge is still very precarious, I think the kinds of early investments that donors are making in peace building and stabilization and resilience are key to the success of our diplomatic efforts to, reserve, to resolve the political disputes, as well as to our military and peace building efforts to marginalize groups like al-Shabaab and other potential spoilers. And before I end, I just wanted to turn, kind of take a step back and just ask the question, which I'm sure no one in this room probably asked, but is still being asked too often, about why should we care about these situations um, and emergencies and crises like the ones we see in these four countries. Um, 
And I think uh, we've already heard examples uh, in the conversation here about uh, the national security implications of these crises um, for the United States, for countries in Europe, when conflicts fester and devolve into humanitarian or regional crises. Um, and the one case that I mentioned, Somalia, violent conflict and state collapse, paved the way for the emergence of al-Shabaab extremists who then affiliated with al-Qaeda and have not only terrorized Somalis but staged terrorist attacks outside of Somalia. And so I think that argument, the national security argument, is a powerful one and one we need to consider carefully. I think a second reason um, that it's important, uh, that's important to factor in is the moral argument for providing life-saving assistance and mitigating future risks. Um, and I think that's an argument that, that is likely to become more and more powerful as our technical development capacity to respond and prevent crises increases. Um, as it has over the past decades. Um, Alex also mentioned the 2011-2012 uh, drought in the Horn. And looking at that example and the response and what happened there, um, and the fact that 250,000 people ended up dying as a result of, of, of errors, really. Um, but also, um, we didn't have the know-how that we have now. Um, the same level of know-how that we have now. Um, I think the, what you're seeing in 2017 in Somalia looks quite different, and I think we are absorbing those lessons. And so I think the moral obligation to engage when our tools are becoming more effective and we've really learned how to do things better um, will grow with time. Um, and then for me, um, I think the, the most important case to be made um, and which doesn't get, get made enough is really about the cost effectiveness of acting upstream to prevent crises from emerging. And I think that's really at the core of what donors are trying to do by increasing the focus of development programs on preventing crises. And I don't think that we can, we have yet quantified the exact cost savings of um, drought resilience and peace building programs, but it's clear from all of the attempts um, to do this that the potential cost savings are enormous. Um, most analyses I've seen suggest that delivering emergency assistance or responding to conflicts by deploying either peacekeeping missions or military interventions are at least three times, and I'm sure that's a huge understatement, um, as expensive as investments in peace building and resilience before war or humanitarian crisis. So with that, I'll stop there because I, I want to keep the remarks short. I wanted to get into also the practical obstacles to um, those long-term investments in, in um, preventing crises, but maybe we can do that during the Q&A. Great. Thank you so much, Corrine. Eric, walk us through first the geography. Tell us what we should be looking sure. at visually when we think of the famines. Okay. Well, thank, first, thanks to CSAS for hosting this panel, and thanks to Alex and Corrine for really building up. Um, I think my comments will build upon Alex's thesis that development is really making famine less severe as time goes on, and, and Corrine's concept that global development is really an inoculation against famine. But uh, Chemonix is involved with food security from several different viewpoints. Um, we're involved in global development programs that are improving agriculture, making more drought-resilient crops, um, better policies in places like Nigeria, Uganda, Mali, Ghana, Haiti, Afghanistan. We're also involved with peace building and community cohesion in areas of conflict. Um, but finally, um, we're managing the FuseNet program, which monitors food security in 36 of the most vulnerable countries around the world. Um, I think most people in this room are probably somewhat familiar with FuseNet, but FuseNet's a collaboration um, of USAID, uh, NOAA, NASA, the US Department of Agriculture, and the US Geological Survey 
and was created after the terrible famines of 1985 to really make sure that that never happened again and make sure that there was an early warning in place so that a humanita humanitarian response could be mobilized um, in time to prevent famine when that vulnerability was there. Um, Chemonix has had the privilege of managing the FuseNet program since uh, 2000, and we manage the FuseNet uh, network of field monitors around the world, um, as well as the DC analytical office. And what FuseNet does is combines together data on weather, um, early vegetation growth very early in the growing cycles, um, all those things observed from satellites, together with on-the-ground monitoring of what's actually happening in the markets at the, at the county or, or lower levels um, to understand how all these factors of food security are coming together and creates a real factual basis to um, uh, make decisions around humanitarian aid programming. So let's look at some of that data. And this is the overall um, food security situation in the world right now. Um, in the places that FuseNet monitors. Um, what you'll see here, I don't know how much you can read of the, um, the key there, but those um, brown or orange circles are the places that um, have large food security needs, large numbers of people affected that have not yet reached their peak needs for the year, and gray are those that um, have already reached their peak needs for the year. Um, FuseNet overall uses something called the Integrated Food Security Phase Classification, where Phase 4 is an emergency situation and Phase 5 is famine. Even Phase 3 is very serious. It's a crisis situation. Um, but most of what we'll talk about today is in Phase 3 and 4. As Kimberly said at the beginning, there aren't any famines going on right now, but there's four places where there's very, very serious danger of famine, and those are the four places we're talking about. The definition of famine, or phase five on the IPC scale, um, includes a number of different factors, the most significant of which is that two out of every 10,000 people are dying each day. Um, so when we've reached that point of famine, it's really a failure of the world community to act, um, and you're really looking at mass death occurring from the famine. So looking at the world now, there are more than 10,000 people being affected by food insecurity in, fam in um, Yemen. That's the most significant situation in the world. But significant food insecurity also exists in Ethiopia, Syria, Kenya, and DRC that has not reached its, uh, its peak for the year yet. And earlier in the year, Malawi, Zimbabwe, and Afghanistan had significant food insecurity events that have already passed their peak. Um, I would disagree with Alex a little bit, where he said that uh, Syria is the four plus one. The FuseNet data actually suggests that Ethiopia is the four plus one right now, and it's the, the place that's not quite at that stage of famine vulnerability. This is the darker circle there, um, but it, it is right on the verge of um, having a much more severe food insecurity problem. So let's look at the four contexts that are themselves quite different. Here's Yemen. and. Uh, you can see the, the scale there where yellow is um, stressed food security. It's a little hard to distinguish the colors there, but orange is crisis, red is emergency, and we're very fortunate that that maroon color of famine doesn't appear anywhere on any of these maps. Um, but throughout Yemen, um, there is some stabilization of the food security situation through humanitarian assistance that's happening, but most of the country is in that orange crisis zone of phase four. Um, in the area of Lahij province, uh, Rafi's governance. Um, it is in a phase four state, which is an emergency um, that is right on the verge of becoming a famine if things are not reduced. And that is an area um, that is not um, uh, bringing the phase down by humanitarian assistance being received. 
In Somalia, uh, there's widespread IPC phase four vulnerability or emergency phase and concentrations of displaced people. Um, there's significant humanitarian assistance um, that's reducing the situation up in the, the far uh, northeast corner there um, in the Bari and Nagal regions that are reducing food insecurity. Um, but much of the country is in that red phase four zone um, of the food emergency. In South Sudan, much of the country is at that orange phase three crisis level um, with humanitarian support throughout the country that's really helping to mitigate that. Um, but we're at IPC phase four, that red emergency level in uh, parts of Western Bahiro Ghazal, parts of Jongle, Unity, Central Equatoria, and Upper Nile State. Now, I wanted to look beyond just the, the maps of, of where the vulnerability is to a little bit more detailed data of what's happening um, with markets, which are the dots, and trade routes. Um, this is a map of South Sudan, and uh, recall where we were with the food instability. This overlays um, where there are roads that are important trade routes that are not accessible, either due to seasonality or due to conflict. Um, and then those red dots are where markets are not functioning right now. Um, when the markets are not functioning, that means food is not available for sale. Um, within Nigeria, within South Sudan, um, many of those routes are closed due to seasonality, a few of them due to conflicts. And up in that, again, the, the northwest part of the country, and a large part of Zhongli, Unity, and Upper Nile states, the markets aren't uh, operating effectively. Many of those trade route closures in that area, though, are actually due to seasonality, not necessarily due to conflict. If you look at the map, it's mainly in the lower left-hand corner there uh, where routes are uh, closed due to conflict. One really interesting dynamic of uh, food security in, in um, South Sudan right now is while grain prices in the markets have increased a thousandfold, there has not been quite the nutritional impact that you would have expected from that amount of a price spike. Um, there's different theories that relate to that. One of those theories is that South Sudan is close enough to having been a barter-based economy in recent memory that um, the markets are not necessary in the, the same way it might be um, in a more developed market economy, and the barter economy is actually helping take some of the mitigation um, out of that food insecurity. Obviously, there's also a lot of humanitarian assistance throughout the country that's buffering that. Now, taking a look at Nigeria. Um, Nigeria, this is the three uh, northeastern states of Nigeria, which is the, um, the part of the country that is, is um, affected by food insecurity now. Um, we have Yobo State, Yobo State um, in the orange zone and Borno in the red zone, um, with a significant amount of displacement of population within Borno into the city, particularly of uh, Maidagori, where a large number of IDPs have taken refuge. Um, much of the issue in Nigeria is due to the inaccessibility of productive lands. Um, those IDPs have left their land because of the instability, um, and even those that have returned to their land are having issues of crops being destroyed um, or other issues that are affecting the actual production itself. Looking at that, that market map for Nigeria, um, the fortunate news is this map's gotten a little better since I was in Nigeria three weeks ago when all that area of, of Borno State had the, the trade routes in red and they were not accessible due to conflict. Um, but those trade routes are now intermittently open in Borno, um, where just, just recently they were, they were blocked, but was, still is not market functioning happening up in that um, north and east part of Borno, um, Borno province. So 
that's what the geography of the famine looks like. like. And I, I think it's important to look at that to remember that we can't just lump all these countries together into the same situation. There are significant distinctions between them. Yes, there's conflict in all four of the countries, um, but there's really uh, profound development differences and de uh, profound development discrepancies. Um, Yemen has a long-developed urban and rural water um, infrastructure and other infrastructure that has really been destroyed as a result of this conflict. Um, there's an enormous part of this that uh, food is being used as a weapon of war, but it's also going to be very, very difficult to build back from that physical disruption um, in Yemen. In South Sudan, there's a critical need for development overall. It's a very underdeveloped country even from the start. That transportation infrastructure, those seasonably blocked roads, those are issues even when there is not food insecurity going on that um, uh, need investments for the base of, of development overall in order to bring this factor into place of global development as an inoculation. Um, in Somalia, investments in governance are paying off, but they're complicated through droughts and famine. Um, Kimonics is actually working on the, the kind of political institutions for um, inclusiveness that uh, Corrine was speaking of, and, and those are taking root. Um, Nigeria is itself a middle-income country, but that part of the country has been quite marginalized and there's, there's disparities. Those have both driven conflict and been affected by conflict. Um, Kimonics is working um, with USAID in Nigeria um, to work on increasing productivity of grains like maize and rice and has quite a lot of success. But because that northeastern area is not accessible because of the conflict, all those gains have been made in the central region of the country, not in the northeast of the country. So you've got rising productivity in parts of the country and, and no agricultural economy happening in the northeast. So that part of the country, again, started marginalized and is being left behind even more. I'm going to use the same quote that Corrine did because I think it's a really important one. I'm actually going to cite it, um, but Paul Collier, the economist, um, said civil war is development in reverse. In all these cases, we're actually seeing development moving backwards, not forward. All the investments that would be made in development are getting worse as these wars go on, and that conflict actually destroys the, the community, the physical, the, all the investments that would have um, been a, an important part of development. I think the next area to, to look at is the question of resilience and the level of household or farm resilience versus community or system or national resilience. And I think it's important to think of the distinctions between the two of them. Um, there are going to be crop failures. As Alex put it, that freak wave, it's going to happen. There's going to be 30-year droughts and you're not going to get productivity in some years. In the US, the states of Georgia and South Carolina had an 80% crop failure this year in their stone fruits. But why wasn't that catastrophic? Why aren't people starving in Georgia and South Carolina? Well, there's a lot of reasons for it. One, um, the U.S. has very large markets. They're very integrated, and we have a very diversified economy. Um, the second is that we have that resilience in the system that even those farmers alone are not fully dependent on that um, crop success for their economic success. There's crop insurance systems in place. There's other ways that the resilience in the, the community and the national system can protect those farmers from that freak wave that occurs. So there's some great examples of work that uh, USAID and other donors have done at that farm level resilience or household level resilience. Um, some of it is uh, drought resistant crop work that's been done in Kenya. Um, I saw an example yesterday from Mercy Corps of um, work in, uh, with pastoralists in Ethiopia on um, drought resilience. 
Um, Chemonics is doing even a little bit uh, more sophisticated work in Mali where we're working um, both at the farm level on introducing techniques for um, both drought and flood resilience, but working with the National Weather Agency to help um, improve the, um, the weather forecasting and getting that information out to the farmers. Those sorts of improvements will help at that, uh, that household and farm level with making agriculture more resilient. Um, but ultimately, what this, this lifting boat of development will do is create that community, that system, and that national resilience, those safety nets that need to exist. At, those at the community level, those safety nets are about livelihoods. Um, how dependent on that community, uh, how dependent is that particular community on agriculture? If there's a crop failure, can the community take care of itself even with the crop failure because there's other sources of livelihood, other sources of income? Um, do local markets fail to provide food? When those local markets fail to provide food, that's where you've got the catastrophe, and that's where there really needs to be something coming from outside of that community to support. But that doesn't always need to be the international humanitarian, humanitarian response that we're used to. In a more sophisticated, more developed economy, there can be domestic relief systems, and obviously with places like Nigeria where you have a, a middle-income country, that's not an unrealistic thing to think about. There's also been some very interesting work done within the global development space um, in areas like insurance. Um, there's a product that I, I looked at last year um, on grazing insurance for pastoral um, herders for livestock. Um, very, very interesting global development products that provide those, uh, those protections and that social safety net even where it's hard to provide. Um, and finally, what's the ability of that country and of that national economy um, to absorb those internally displaced people? Because when you do have that freak wave, there are going to be internally displaced people, um, and the ability of the country to, um, to deal with that is, is quite uh, important. I, I find the relationship between global development and humanitarian relief um, useful to think about in terms of a, a metaphor of a fire station. Um, it's very, very costly to build a fire station, to, to buy fire trucks, to put fire hydrants on every block, um, to pay your salaries of your firefighters, to run your 911 system. All those pieces are expensive, and local communities anywhere in the world debate whether it's worthwhile. But when there's a house fire, um, that house fire um, could either be localized in the room or the house that it's in, or it could spread to its neighbors. It can take out a community, a block, a city, a forest. Um, and that preparation that's put in place um, by investing upfront can be much, much, much less than the destructive power <clears throat> of the catastrophe happening afterwards. Corinne asked the question, why should we care? Why should we invest in development? Um, I think she's right. There's a humanitarian argument that it's the right thing to do. There's an economic argument um, of avoided cost, but also building prosperous trade partners. And there's a national security, a national security argument of avoiding failed states and avoiding war. But when you compare those, those three things together, those costs, you can think of development in millions of dollars of cost. You can think of humanitarian relief when there is a catastrophe in billions of dollars of costs. And if there has to be a military engagement because of a failed state, you're talking about trillions of dollars of costs. So the investments in development really, really pay off when scaled against massive humanitarian relief or military intervention. And I think all of us would agree that that investment is worthwhile. 
Thank you so much, Eric. I, I, the maps are super helpful. I'm a, I'm a visual learner, so I need to see things. I also think it also emphasizes your point and that you can't lump these all together. It's easy to say four famines. It's kind of a good advocacy tool, but um, they're very different situations and require different responses. Um, I just have a few questions because I really want to get to the audience. But Alex, I want to start with you. You know, you talked about how we, we've had this 95% reduction and, and that this famine looks different than in many years past, but, and you spent your whole career studying famines. Do you have hope at all that we could ever get to 100% reduction? I think it's, it's perfectly feasible. Um, I think the, um, by the way, I, when I say freak wave, freak wave is multiple causes coming together. It can't just be one. And, but the, the, I, I think we need to attend to the freak waves. And here, there's, there's an interesting thing that, Eric, you touched on that I think needs to be brought out, which is that the funding model for disaster response is medieval. It's basically like, you know, we're a donor, we're a, you know, and there are a bunch of beggars lined up inside, outside the church, and we will give a few coins here and there if we like their faces until we've run out. And... It, 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 it is the most rudimentary financial system in the world. You know, has the humanitarian system never heard of insurance? And in fact, the, the Center for Global Development and Stefan Durkon, who is um, chief economist at the UK Department for International Development, have written a couple of reports and books on insurance. And the idea, and, 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 and an example of how um, automatic or, or very propitious response can work extraordinarily effectively is Ethiopia in 2015, where 18 million people were in level three. The Ethiopian government responded with $500 million put into the emergency the response in um, just two, three weeks after this became clear in, in, in September, October of 2015, before the international community could respond, which it then did. But the fact that that was that immediate response made it possible, highly professional response as well, the Ethiopians really know how to do this, made it possible for a, 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 a crisis that in numeric terms matches the numbers of people affected today not to develop into a famine. There was only a 28% increase in, 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 in the price of food, no measured increase in, in, in mortality. Very, very good strategic investment by the Ethiopians. If you look, there were a lot of riots across the country that, that year, major protests not in the areas which were drought affected and where there was humanitarian relief going in. Had that not happened and had the price of food gone up three, four hundred percent, God knows what might have happened. Very canny response by them, but saved a lot of lives. Um, and if, if there were to be an automatic insurance-based response based upon assessments of aridity uh, on, of whatever, that could become the, the common way of responding instead of, um, instead of the, the, the extraordinarily ad hoc and by definition very, very slow uh, response that we have now. So that's one thing that could be done. The other is, is um, stopping famine being, starvation being used as, as a weapon of war. And, and that is a political action. And, 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 and all it needs is, is political will and um, pressure from audiences such as this to say to our allies, it's not the enemies, it's not the North Koreas we're concerned about here, it's our own allies, the Saudi Arabias, the UAEs, um, uh, 
and until a few years ago, the South Sudanese who, 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 who were doing this. Well, since you brought up political will, I go straight to Corrine. Um, in terms of, you know, you talked about how politics is at the heart of everything. And you also talked about the importance of resilience and, and how one thing that we can do is sort of strengthen that relationship between government leaders and its people. Um, to me, the political will and the strengthening of governance, it, to me, goes back to diplomacy. And so I'd like to hear a little bit on just your thoughts on, and specific to US or not, but just what's the role of diplomacy in this, whether that's um, having to do with building up leaders and, and building political will, whether it's criminalizing, but just what's the role of diplomacy in this? I mean, I think with respect to what we're talking about here, which is the role of development, I think one role of diplomacy is it has to be backed up. Um, development programs and development uh, investments, especially in this sector, um, governance, peace building, often have to be backed up by diplomacy. And so what you see, um, and I'm going to come back to Somalia, but when you have a forward-leaning um, ambassador and the State Department is being very forward-leaning in terms of, of trying to get an ambassador and diplomatic presence back into Somalia, um, they're really able to play an instrumental role in, um, in addition to our programs which are happening at the community level um, and which are happening at the federal level, um, having the ambassador engage with the federal government and the regional governments, for example, um, because uh, a lot of the issues that need to be resolved um, have to do with consolidating the federal arrangements um, in Somalia right now. So the diplomacy, I think, has to be aligned with the development programs and really back it up. So I think that's one. Um, and then I think, um, you know, there are, there are problems that can't be solved by development, and I think acknowledging and understanding the limits of development, obviously, is important. Um, and so, uh, you know, we're facing a number of crises right now where it's hard to see how we, we move forward and progress from where these situations are right now without a strong diplomatic engagement. Um, and um, in all cases, consistent, high-level, um, on-the-ground uh, ambassadors, but as well as Washington. Um, and so I think, um, you know, the, the diplomatic piece in the here and now is critical. Um, so I think those are probably the two most important roles. Eric, I'm going to open it to say, if you, one, if you have any points you want to add to the two questions I already asked. but. But also just more broadly, um, you know, you spoke about sort of how development does things like market linkages and kind of the agriculture component, which of course is my interest. Um, can you give just some more concrete examples? Maybe talk about when you were in, in Nigeria a few weeks ago, but to help our audience understand that's maybe not in our development bubble of what kind of concrete examples of development programming and how it really can build up resilience um, to what these kinds of shocks are. Sure. Let me, let me take the first part first. And um, to the question of, of the diplomatic role, I think that the diplomatic role is, is absolutely essential. And I think we're, we're seeing right now a lack of diplomatic engagement that needs to happen to, to work on these conflicts. 
But we've also got to remember that alongside that diplomatic role, it's, it's really important to have those development investments that are often much, much longer term. The development engagement, uh, the, the diplomatic engagement has to happen and has to happen in a strong way. Um, but you can't engage briefly with a situation and then disengage um, without making those longer term development investments. So um, that's what I'd have to add to that. The examples of the, um, what kind of development work can improve the agriculture in a country um, that can keep that country from being in a food insecure situation. Um, let me use the example of the, the work that we did in Nigeria that I, I visited just a couple weeks ago. Um, in that country, the, um, much of the agriculture is, is done on a, a small holder basis. It's, it's very small farmers. Um, in some cases subsistence, in some cases you know, kind of local market connected, but there's very little connectivity between the, um, those growers and larger scale markets or larger scale agriculture. And um, that means that their ability to invest in production techniques um, that get larger scale production is very limited. So um, as you can connect those farmers into you know, what we call the, the modern, although that's a word I think all of us hate, um, but the, uh, the broader economy and allow them to sell their products at, at particular grades that are needed um, into processors, into um, packagers that can get things um, out in the broader market, that can allow them to adopt new technologies, new seeds, new ways of, of tilling or irrigating. Um, that can make their crops more resilient, that can get them more productivity for, per hectare, and very often can get multiple crop cycles um, in a year. And in a place like Nigeria, achieving um, a second or a third crop in a year um, can be astronomically changing um, both farmers' incomes, but also the amount of food that's produced in that local economy that, um, that helps uh, for food security situations. So that's one of many examples of things. Many of them have to do with technologies, many have to do with improved seeds or um, improved irrigation, but um, generally that, that connectivity into the, the market economy is, is one of the major interventions that, uh, that global development can, uh, can undertake and really make that whole food system work effectively. Thank you very much. I want to go ahead and turn to the audience now and take questions. We'll have some microphones that come around. I hope to do two rounds. So raise your hand if you have a question. I, I want to preface this to say we're not looking for, fourth, for a fourth panelist. So do introduce yourself. Um, let me know if you have a question directed a specific um, of, of our speaker, a specific speaker, or feel free to make it more broadly. Who has questions? Raise it right here. Right around, do you see? Yeah, there we go. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Hi, my name is Yeshim with the United Nations Development Program. Thank you so much for this organization. It's really um, fantastic to see different perspectives. And for the person on the ground, they don't care if you're a development actor or a humanitarian actor, or if you're part of a political spectrum. Uh, the, the person who's on the ground suffering actually doesn't care about these distinctions. So it behooves us to talk about these mm -hmm. together. So thank you very much. My question is to pretty much all the panelists about um, your observations or expectations from the international architecture, the um, new way of doing business, the new way of working, which follows, I guess, the principles of the New Deal after Somalia and how you see that um, on the ground evolving. And just I can't help but add, 
um, in terms of the development programming we do, which in humanitarian context, um, the importance of making sure to maintain state functions that are actually there, even if they're minimal. And Yemen is, is one of those cases where we're working with the World Bank to make sure that the state systems for assistance to making sure people have cash um, are, are operating, such as the social fund. So I wanted to highlight that that's equally important. Thank you. Great. Thank you so much. Other questions? Come right here, the, the, the man in the blue shirt. Yes. Hi, no award. Uh, I just had a question to play off of Mrs. Flowers' uh, point about diplomacy and development. I was wondering, when you talk about the international community, uh, what exactly are you referring to in terms of the response? Should that be through individual countries, through the United Nations, through trade organizations? How do you believe that this response to these famines should go? Thank you. Over here, yes. Uh, Erica Hovani, I'm with the African Risk Capacity, and we do natural disaster risk insurance for African governments at the sovereign level, so I was happy to hear the panelists are, uh, in support of that. One of the things that we're doing, actually, is opening up a pilot project to help to allow humanitarian actors to use our insurance products also to fund part of their responses to natural disasters um, and to capitalize on the savings that you get from early intervention. But actually, my question was specifically for Alex talking about um, starvation as a war crime. And I'm wondering, um, are there, has that ever been used it already in a war crime prosecution? Or are there specific actors that are advocating for that, organizations? How is the um, advocacy behind that shaping up, or is it brand new? Great, let's take one more question. Right here in the back, the man in the green shirt. Fantastic, thank you. Hi. Um, Ben Phillips from Child Fund International. Um, great presentations, all of you. Think. I'm just really intrigued by this concept of resilience. I mean, it's one of the things I'm tasked with in my organization is trying to develop our resilience programming more. And it's kind of interesting, because on the one hand, I'm you know, both during this discussion and previously in discussions with other people, to some degree, any successful development can build resilience. I mean, if I have higher income, I have some savings in the bank, I am better able to withstand any type of shock that might happen. So, you know, to what degree when we say we want to build resilience or do resilience programming, is it something new or different or is it something that, you know, we just want to do good development and, and do it well and, and keep doing it or maybe some of both? It's a very good question. It's one I ask all the time too. <laughs> So why don't we just start to go down, and I'll plug in anything that gets missed. Well, let's start with you, Alex, and we'll go all the way down. You can answer what you wish. Let me respond to two very briefly on, on the international architecture and the New Deal. I think there's a lot of, of, of goodwill and a lot of professionalism and a lot of effort going in the right direction. But I think that um, it, it, it is struggling not only against the the problems that are inherent in these countries, but also factors that are coming from above. And the, and, and, and the main one, and Somalia is actually a, a remarkably good example, is the way that external actors pour money into what in local parlance they call political budgets, which, are, which is money that does not need to be accounted for, which is payment for political services, the most naked form of transactional politics. And with the GCC dispute, the Qataris and the Turks and the Saudis and the Emiratis have been pouring money in. 
and or withholding money because they want particular Somali players to be on their side. And this type of political marketplace uh, bargaining actually actively, un very actively undermines the institutional development. And unfortunately, the, the legitimization of this type of, of um, deal-making as the ultimate form of politics is also coming from this city. And so I think we, um, that's part of the, the, um, the challenge that we face. In terms of, of, of uh, the question about the, the, the criminalization of starvation, uh, it was striking at the Nuremberg tribunals. The evidence or cases of the use of starvation uh, in, in Auschwitz, um, in the siege of Leningrad, were brought by prosecutors. That they were either ignored or not accepted by the judges on the grounds that at that time, starvation was a legitimate form of, 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 of war. And in the case of the, the Auschwitz, uh, where many people died of starvation, the, uh, the, it was an evidentiary argument. The argument was we cannot prove that the actions of so-and-so caused the death by starvation of so-and-so. There are many other factors that could have been involved. Um, there was also a political reason, which was that the, the Allies, the British and the United States, during World War II had also used blockade and even actually... Uh, in, in the last stages of the war against Japan, the U.S. Air Force, in blockading the harbors of Japan, anticipating the war would go on, of course it, went, it was brought to a close more quickly than, than, than was anticipated, that operation was called Operation Starvation. So it is not surprising that the, the Allies um, did not want to press, prosecute, uh, prosecute for starvation. Now, subsequently, there have been a couple of cases. One was in the, the Yugoslav tribunals, where the, the commander responsible for the siege of Sarajevo was, at one point, going to be prosecuted for starvation. But the, the prosecutor interpreted it very narrowly as a crime of extermination. And because, again, that was not possible to prove that the particular actions had led to the, the deaths of particular individuals, they found it easier to take other routes. And then in the case of, of Cambodia, the extraordinary chambers of Cambodia, just recently there was a lot of pressure to say, now this is, this is the exemplary case where we can bring starvation as a crime against humanity. But it wasn't done. And, and again, it was because the, 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 um, the prosecutors weren't sure whether they should prosecute starvation as a crime of extermination or a crime of persecution, and they thought, well, we can get these people on, on, on simpler charges. So it's, it strikes me that what's needed is, is not so much a um, new law, but a campaign to say, well, starvation is, is, is illegal, and, and it's illegal in many ways as extermination, as, 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 as persecution, as cruel, as the infliction of unnecessary harm. It's, 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 it's prohibited under the uh, revised protocols, the 1977 protocols of the, of the Geneva Conventions. But let's, let's just make it a headline instead of making it the, the small print, the footnotes. And that requires, that requires political action. That requires people to stand up and say, starvation at any time is, is, is prohibited, including by our friends. Thank you, Alex. Kareen, especially address the... New Deal. The New Deal as well as the resiliency question. 
Um, so on the New Deal, I mean, my perspective on that is where the New Deal goes from here depends on whether there's high-level um, political buy-in and support for it. And so whether that's this particular framework, whether it's a different framework, unless it's driven and through US leadership or, or just global level leadership, um, where it's getting hung up from my perspective in implementation is simply that there just isn't the sufficient level of buy-in. I think one, one exception is, is Somalia. Um, although even there, you know, it could probably be implemented um, um, better than it is being. So I, I think it really depends on whether uh, whether or not there's high-level political buy-in for it um, and for the principles. Um, I would also just mention that um, in addition to criminalizing uh, violations of, of international humanitarian law, and it's also, the, there are uh, in, in sanctions prongs and in the UN Security Council, obviously, um, human, blockage of humanitarian assistance is included um, in a lot of country sanctions um, prongs. So that's not criminalizing, but it is kind of a first step um, to build on. Um, and, and then the question about resilience. Um, so resilience, I think, um, I think you're right. I think global development, by definition, is striving to build resilience, sustainable systems. Um, but I think the difference with the current push um, to focus specifically on resilience is to do it really more deliberately, more deliberately um, to focus those in investments specifically in the regions and the countries that are most vulnerable um, and to really be more strategic about doing that, um, as well as to protect the development gains that agencies are making across the board. So it's a deliberate effort to also protect by, from black backsliding um, and to, to uh, secure those development investments. So I think it, it's taking resilience to the next level. Um, Thanks. Eric, as well as any final remarks. Sure, just a couple things to add. Uh, I would second the, the point to make sure that we're maintaining and not, not disrupting or destroying existing state functions when we get into this humanitarian emergency situation, because they're going to be critical coming out of the crisis as well as within it. Um, I would add to that, though, um, the same goes for the private sector. Um, I think the private sector can be extremely vulnerable in humanitarian emergencies, and that private sector is also going to be critical to coming out of that humanitarian emergency. Um, one of the, the cases I mentioned where we've done a lot of work in agriculture in Haiti, and Haiti's a very, very difficult place um, to improve agricultural productivity because it's a place that is frequently been inundated with uh, disaster, and that disaster has often come with inundations of assistance that disrupt that market economy. And it's, uh, there was a point in time that no seed importers would import seeds into Haiti because they were being distributed for free all over the place. And being able to get consistent investments in agriculture in that kind of environment can be very, very difficult. So I, I think it's important to remember not to disrupt this, those existing state functions, but also not to disrupt the, uh, the private sector and, and allow that private sector to, to rebuild as you come out of the crisis. Um, the other place I would, I would add is in the question of resilience. I, I agree. I think resilience is a, a squishy topic that's hard to get your head around. That's why I really broke it down into this kind of household and farm level resilience versus the, um, the community systematic and national level resilience. I think there's, there's another way to look at it a little bit. And I, I, I think Corrine's right that the, the sophistication of how resilience programming has targeted the, the parts of 
um, the system and the parts of society that are vulnerable, that's, that's critical. But there's also a, there's a scientific resilience of how can you actually make the, the agriculture, how can you actually make the, the produce more resilient to these weather shocks? Um, there's also this systematic resilience, and I think that's, that's equally important, the questions around um, domestic social safety nets in the country, the, the questions around disaster risk insurance. Um, I think those areas of systematic insurance are things that um, we're going to see great advancements in uh, many of the developing countries in the world in the, um, in the coming years, and they're really, really critical because that's what's going to make the res resilient society, not just the resilient farmer. Um, and ultimately, they're both important. Let's give a huge round of applause for our panelists. congressional champions for international aid. To be frank, he's one of the few Republicans on the Hill that really understands that the U.S. is at its best when we employ all three Ds. That's referring to defense, diplomacy, and development. Senator Young, thank you um, for your understanding of why it is in America's interest to address global hunger and poverty, for defending the international affairs budget, and for seeking action to save lives. Well, thank you. Uh, I want to thank Kimberly for your leadership and, and CSIS and all those who helped make today's event possible and, and all of you, of course, uh, who uh, toil in the trenches, some uh, with, uh, with great fanfare, other, others uh, in the shadows. Uh, to ensure that uh, we increase uh, stability, that uh, we care for the world's uh, most needy, and, and I look forward to partnering with you in these efforts moving forward. Um, Kimberly, you assembled an impressive array of panelists here today, and I caught the tail end of that. I just came from a briefing on Capitol Hill regarding Afghanistan and North Korea and the path forward there. And um, so apologies for being late. I'll make an effort to compress my remarks, knowing that the only thing standing between all of you in your reception is me. And, and that's a bit of an unenviable position. But um, the world, as everyone here knows, confronts the worst humanitarian crisis since World War II. Northeastern Nigeria, Somalia, South Sudan, and Yemen. Um, and these four countries alone, as World Food Program Director, exec, Executive Director Beasley testified on, in July, about 20 million people are at risk of severe hunger or starvation. In Yemen alone, an estimated 17 million people are food insecure 
and almost 10 million people are in acute need of humanitarian assistance. So to put that number in perspective, I know a number of people are watching this via webcast, 17 million is almost three times the population of Indiana. That's a big deal for this U.S. Senator from Indiana. That's 17 million men, women, and children who don't know where their next meal is coming from. Exacerbated by malnutrition, Yemen also continues to suffer from the world's worst cholera epidemic with more than 600,000 infected and more than 2,000 deaths. Now what makes the humanitarian crises in Yemen and the three other countries so heartbreaking is the fact that to varying degrees, the humanitarian crises are man-made and preventable, exacerbated by armed conflict and deliberate restrictions on humanitarian access. We've seen attacks on humanitarian personnel an insufficient global response to the funding needs, and many man-made impediments to the delivery of humanitarian assistance. Take the actions of the Saudis in Yemen, for example. In addition to impeding the flow of humanitarian assistance into Red Sea ports, the Saudi-led coalition deliberately and precisely bombed cranes in the port of Hodeidah, that were critical to the delivery of humanitarian supplies. They bombed a World Food Program warehouse, and they've since January prevented the delivery of replacement cranes. The Saudi-led coalition has also placed limitations on journalists entering Yemen, making it more difficult for the media to portray the dire and urgent conditions there. Now let me briefly turn to why the international community should help. It may strike many of you as, as self-evident, but um, the American people need to know. When we see such suffering on, on such a grand scale, it's tempting, I think, for some to feel overwhelmed and to allow that feeling to devolve into a sense of resignation and apathy. Now again, I, I don't think those of you in this room are likely to fall prey to that tendency. But allow me to explain why I believe such a response would be a mistake for the United States in our international partners. First, I believe the international community, of course, has a moral imperative to do all we can to help. We've been blessed with much, and America is at our best when we lead by example and assemble international coalitions to do good. I recently had dinner with Bono. I love the beginning of that sentence. And, and, and Bono told me of, of a conversation he once had with Warren, Warren Buffett, and, and he said, you don't always need to appeal to American sense of, of morality, though they will respond to that from time to time, but appeal to their sense of greatness. We're a great country when we lead by example and assemble international coalitions to do good. Now, in addition to this moral imperative, I believe we also have a national security interest to do all we can to help. Once again, consider Yemen. The crisis in Yemen is not only a humanitarian catastrophe, but it's an increasing national security threat. Most Yemenis don't want to be puppets of Iran, and they don't want to join terrorist organizations. Yet there are concerns that Yemenis at risk of starvation may be willing to do what's necessary to feed their children including turning to Iran or joining terrorist groups like Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula or ISIS. 
This dynamic increases the threat to Americans and our allies and heightens further the sectarian nature of the war, making the conflict there all the more intractable and peace all the more elusive. As David Beasley, the executive director of the World Food Program, testified this summer, quote, whether you're dealing with extremist groups or terrorist groups, when mothers or fathers or families can't feed their children in these, these extremist areas and they don't have access or opportunity to leave, then they have no choice but to turn to what's available to them. And so when the United States provides the leadership to make certain that these families, mothers and fathers can feed their children, they don't turn to extremism. They don't turn and yield to terrorism, unquote. So I've tried to use my position in the Senate and on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee to fulfill this moral imperative to help, to help the suffering and the vulnerable and to protect our national security interests. Working with my partners, many who are represented here in this room, I've used bipartisan letters, meetings, legislation, and a hearing to raise the visibility of these crises and to call for urgent action. Now the challenges are daunting and progress has been slow, but I'm pleased that on August 9, the UN Security Council unanimously passed a statement on the humanitarian crises calling on all parties to respect international humanitarian law and permit unhindered access for humanitarian assistance to all areas. That unanimous vote was a significant and positive step, but given the severity and the urgency of the humanitarian crises, this statement is obviously not enough. We must see tangible steps by all parties to put words into action. Turning now to our priorities going forward. In the short term, I believe we must focus on three things, funding, access, and of course, resolution of the conflicts. Responses to the humanitarian crises remain unacceptably underfunded. For example, according to the United Nations Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, the Yemen Humanitarian Response Plan for 2017 is only 44% funded. We see similar shortfalls elsewhere. While I'm proud of the role the American people and our Congress has played in helping to fund the humanitarian responses, some of our partners can and should do more. Second, humanitarian access remains a leading challenge. The international community must speak with a clear and unambiguous voice. Combatants must end attacks on humanitarian personnel and facilities, and countries should stop using food and medicine as weapons of war to gain political advantage or leverage. Deliberately attacking humanitarian personnel and facilities and impeding humanitarian relief to areas not under a combatant's control are clear violations of customary international humanitarian law. They must stop. When countries or combatants fail to respect these clear humanitarian standards, I believe the U.S. government should lead an international effort to hold offenders accountable. In that spirit, I was especially pleased to see Administrator Mark Green's pointed comments 
during his recent trip to South Sudan and following his meeting with President Kiir. Finally, as I've said, each of the four famines are man-made and preventable and driven largely by conflict. We must address the conflicts in each of these countries that have caused or exacerbated these humanitarian crises. Now, I realize this is easier said than done and will require persistent and comprehensive diplomatic efforts at the UN, here in Washington, and in capitals around the world. Successfully advancing each of these three priorities will require U.S. international engagement and leadership, as well as an empowered and well-resourced Department of State. So in conclusion, I want to thank CSIS and you, Kimberly, once again, for all your leadership and for allowing me to participate here in today's event. I also want to thank each of you who took the time to come and join us via webcast. And I know many of you have dedicated years to addressing the kind of humanitarian crises we discussed today. Thank you. These humanitarian challenges are enormous. The suffering is great. I am confident that working together, we can continue to do good and make a positive difference. Thanks for letting me be a part of it. Thank you so much, Senator Young. We need a whole lot more of him on Capitol Hill. So let's have a reception. Um, I want to urge you during this time um, to really talk and network as well as if you have further questions for the speakers, please continue to engage. Thank you so much. I mentioned Somalia, violent conflict and state collapse paved the way for the emergence of al-Shabaab extremists who then affiliated with al-Qaeda and have not only terrorized Somalis but staged terrorist attacks outside of Somalia. And so I think that argument, the national security argument, is a powerful one and one we need to consider carefully. I think a second reason um, that it's important, uh, that's important to factor in is the moral argument for providing life-saving assistance and mitigating future risks. Um, and I think that's an argument that, that is likely to become more and more powerful as our technical development capacity to respond and prevent crises increases. Um, as it has over the past decades. Um, Alex also mentioned the 2011-2012 uh, drought in the Horn. And looking at that example and the response and what happened there, um, and the fact that 250,000 people ended up dying as a result of, of, of errors, really. Um, but also, um, we didn't have the know-how that we have now. Um, the same level of know-how that we have now. Um, I think the, what you're seeing in 2017 in Somalia looks quite different, and I think we are absorbing those lessons. And so I think the more obligation to engage when our tools are becoming more effective and we've really learned how to do things better um, will grow with time. Um, and then for me, um, I think the, the most important case to be made um, and which doesn't get, get made enough is really about the cost effectiveness of acting upstream to prevent crises from emerging. And I think that's really at the core of what donors are trying to do by increasing the focus of development programs on preventing crises. And I don't think that we can, we have yet quantified the exact cost savings of um, drought resilience and peace building programs, but it's clear from all of the attempts um, to do this that the potential cost savings are enormous. Um, most 
Most analyses I've seen suggest that delivering emergency assistance or responding to conflicts by deploying either peacekeeping missions or military interventions are at least three times, and I'm sure that's a huge understatement, um, as expensive as investments in peace building and resilience before war or humanitarian crisis. So with that, I'll stop there because I, I want to keep the remarks short. I wanted to get into also the practical obstacles to um, those long-term investments in, in um, preventing crises, but maybe we can do that during the Q&A. Great. Thank you so much, Corrine. Eric, walk us through first the geography. Tell us what we should be looking sure. at visually when we think of the famines. Well, thank, first, thanks to CSAS for hosting this panel, and thanks to Alex and Corrine for really building up. Um, I think my comments will build upon Alex's thesis that development is really making famine less severe as time goes on, and, and Corrine's concept that global development is really an inoculation against famine. But uh, Chemonix is involved with food security from several different viewpoints. Um, we're involved in global development programs that are improving agriculture, making more drought-resilient crops, um, better policies in places like Nigeria, Uganda, Mali, Ghana, Haiti, Afghanistan. We're also involved with peace building and community cohesion in areas of conflict. Um, but finally, um, we're managing the FuseNet program, which monitors food security in 36 of the most vulnerable countries around the world. Um, I think most people in this room are probably somewhat familiar with FuseNet, but FuseNet's a collaboration um, of USAID, uh, NOAA, NASA, the US Department of Agriculture, and the US Geological Survey and was created after the terrible famines of 1985 to really make sure that that never happened again and make sure that there was an early warning in place so that a humanit humanitarian response could be mobilized um, in time to prevent famine when that vulnerability was there. Um, Chemonix has had the privilege of managing the FuseNet program since uh, 2000, and we manage the FuseNet uh, network of field monitors around the world, um, as well as the DC Analytical Office. And what FuseNet does is combines together data on weather, um, early vegetation growth, very early in the growing cycles, um, all those things observed from satellites, together with on-the-ground monitoring of what's actually happening in the markets at the, at the county or, or lower levels um, to understand how all these factors of food security are coming together and creates a real factual basis to um, uh, make decisions around humanitarian aid programming. So let's look at some of that data. And this is the overall um, food security situation in the world right now. Um, in the places that FuseNet monitors. Um, what you'll see here, I don't know how much you can read of the, um, the key there, but those um, brown or orange circles are the places that um, have large food security needs, large numbers of people affected that have not yet reached their peak needs for the year, and gray are those that um, have already reached their peak needs for the year. Um, FuseNet overall uses something called the integrated food security phase classification, where phase four is an emergency situation and phase five is famine. Even phase three is very serious. It's a crisis situation. Um, but most of what we'll talk about today is in phase three and four. As Kimberly said at the beginning, there aren't any famines going on right now, but there's four places where there's very, very serious danger of famine. And those are the four places we're talking about. The definition of famine, or phase five on the IPC scale, um, includes a number of different factors, the most significant of which is that two out of every 10,000 people are dying each day. Um, so when we've reached that point of famine, it's really a failure of the world community to act, um, and you're really looking at mass death occurring from the famine. So looking at the world now, 
there are more than 10,000 people being affected by food insecurity in, fam in um, Yemen. That's the most significant situation in the world. But significant food insecurity also exists in Ethiopia, Syria, Kenya, and DRC that has not reached its, uh, its peak for the year yet. And earlier in the year, Malawi, Zimbabwe, and Afghanistan had significant food insecurity events that have already passed their peak. Um, I would disagree with Alex a little bit, where he said that uh, Syria is the four plus one. The FuseNet data actually suggests that Ethiopia is the four plus one right now, and it's the, the place that's not quite at that stage of famine vulnerability. That's the darker circle there, um, but it, it is right on the verge of um, having a much more severe food insecurity problem. So let's look at the four contexts that are themselves quite different. Here's Yemen. And uh, you can see the, the scale there where yellow is um, stressed food security. It's a little hard to distinguish the colors there, but orange is crisis, red is emergency. And we're very fortunate that that maroon color of famine doesn't appear anywhere on any of these maps. Um, but throughout Yemen, um, there is some stabilization of the food security situation through humanitarian assistance that's happening, but most of the country is in that orange crisis zone of phase four. Um, in the area of Lahij province, uh, Lahij governance, um, it is in a phase four state, which is an emergency um, that is right on the verge of becoming a famine if things are not reduced, and that is an area um, that is not um, uh, bringing the phase down by humanitarian assistance being received. In Somalia, uh, there's widespread IPC phase four vulnerability or emergency phase and concentrations of displaced people. Um, there's significant humanitarian assistance um, that's reducing the situation up in the, the far uh, northeast corner there um, in the Bari and Nagal regions that are reducing food insecurity. Um, but much of the country is in that red phase four zone um, of the food emergency. In South Sudan, much of the country is at that orange phase three crisis level um, with humanitarian support throughout the country that's really helping to mitigate that. Um, but we're at IPC phase four, that red emergency level in uh, parts of Western Bahiro Ghazal, parts of Jongle, Unity, Central Equatoria, and Upper Nile State. Now, I wanted to look beyond just the, the maps of, of where the vulnerability is to a little bit more detailed data of what's happening um, with markets, which are the dots, and trade routes. Um, this is a map of South Sudan, and uh, recall where we were with the food instability. This overlays um, where there are roads that are important trade routes that are not accessible, either due to seasonality or due to conflict. Um, and then those red dots are where markets are not functioning right now. Um, when the markets are not functioning, that means food is not available for sale. Um, within Nigeria, within South Sudan, um, many of those routes are closed due to seasonality, a few of them due to conflicts. And up in that, again, the, the northwest part of the country, and a large part of Zhongli, Unity, and Upper Nile states, the markets aren't uh, operating effectively. Many of those trade route closures in that area, though, are actually due to seasonality, not necessarily due to conflict. If you look at the map, it's mainly in the lower left-hand corner there uh, where routes are uh, closed due to conflict. One really interesting dynamic of uh, food security in, in um, South Sudan right now is while grain prices in the markets have increased a thousandfold, 
there has not been quite the nutritional impact that you would have expected from that amount of a price spike. Um, there's different theories that relate to that. One of those theories is that South Sudan is close enough to having been a barter-based economy in recent memory that um, the markets are not necessary in the, the same way it might be um, in a more developed market economy, and the barter economy is actually helping take some of the mitigation um, out of that food insecurity. Obviously, there's also a lot of humanitarian assistance throughout the country that's buffering that. Now, taking a look at Nigeria. Um, Nigeria, this is the three uh, northeastern states of Nigeria, which is the, um, the part of the country that is, is um, affected by food insecurity now. Um, we have Yobo State, Yobo State um, in the orange zone and Borno in the red zone, um, with a significant amount of displacement of population within Borno into the city, particularly of uh, Maidagori, where a large number of IDPs have taken refuge. Um, much of the issue in Nigeria is due to the inaccessibility of productive lands. Um, those IDPs have left their land because of the instability, um, and even those that have returned to their land are having issues of crops being destroyed um, or other issues that are affecting the actual production itself. Looking at that, that market map for Nigeria, um, the fortunate news is this map's gotten a little better since I was in Nigeria three weeks ago when all that area of, of Borno State had the, the trade routes in red and they were not accessible due to conflict. Um, but those trade routes are now intermittently open in Borno, um, where just, just recently they were, they were blocked, but was, still is not market functioning happening up in that um, north and east part of Borno, um, Borno province. So that's what the geography of the famine looks like. And I, I think it's important to look at that to remember that we can't just lump all these countries together into the same situation. There are significant distinctions between them. Yes, there's conflict in all four of the countries, um, but there's really uh, profound development differences and uh, profound development discrepancies. Um, Yemen has a long developed urban and rural water um, infrastructure and other infrastructure that has really been destroyed as a result of this conflict. Um, there's an enormous part of this that uh, food is being used as a weapon of war, but it's also going to be very, very difficult to build back from that physical disruption um, in Yemen. In South Sudan, there's a critical need for development overall. It's a very underdeveloped country even from the start. That transportation infrastructure, those seasonably blocked roads, those are issues even when there is not food insecurity going on that um, uh, need investments for the base of, of development overall in order to bring this factor into place of global development as an inoculation. Um, in Somalia, investments in governance are paying off, but they're complicated through droughts and famine. Um, Chemonics is actually working on the, the kind of political institutions for um, inclusiveness that uh, Corrine was speaking of, and, and those are taking root. Um, Nigeria is itself a middle-income country, but that part of the country has been quite marginalized and there's, there's disparities. Those have both driven conflict and been affected by conflict. Um, Chemonics is working um, with USAID in Nigeria um, to work on increasing productivity of grains like maize and rice and it's had quite a lot of success. But because that northeastern area is not accessible because of the conflict, all those gains have been made in the central region of the country, not in the northeast of the country. So you've got rising productivity in parts of the country and, and no agricultural economy happening in the northeast. So that part of the country, again, started marginalized and is being left behind even more. 
I'm going to use the same quote that Corinne did because I think it's a really important one. I'm actually going to cite it. Um, but Paul Collier, the economist, um, said civil war is development in reverse. In all these cases, we're actually seeing development moving backwards, not forward. All the investments that would be made in development are getting worse as these wars go on. And that conflict actually destroys the, the community, the physical, the, all the investments that would have um, been a, an important part of development. I think the next area to, to look at is the question of resilience and the level of household or farm resilience versus community or system or national resilience. And I think it's important to think of the distinctions between the two of them. Um, there are going to be crop failures. As Alex put it, that freak wave, it's going to happen. There's going to be 30-year droughts, and you're not going to get productivity in some years. In the US, the states of Georgia and South Carolina had an 80% crop failure this year in their stone fruits. But why wasn't that catastrophic? Why aren't people starving in Georgia and South Carolina? Well, there's a lot of reasons for it. One, um, the US has very large markets. They're very integrated. And we have a very diversified economy. Um, the second is that we have that resilience in the system that even those farmers alone are not fully dependent on that um, crop success for their economic success. There's crop insurance systems in place. There's other ways that the resilience in the, the community and the national system can protect those farmers from that freak wave that occurs. So there's some great examples of work that uh, USAID and other donors have done at that farm level resilience or household level resilience. Um, some of it is uh, drought resistant crop work that's been done in Kenya. Um, I saw an example yesterday from Mercy Corps of um, work in, uh, with pastoralists in Ethiopia on um, drought resilience. Um, Chemonics is doing even a little bit uh, more sophisticated work in Mali where we're working um, both at the farm level on introducing techniques for um, both drought and flood resilience, but working with the National Weather Agency to help um, improve the, um, the weather forecasting and getting that information out to the farmers. Those sorts of improvements will help at that, uh, that household and farm level with making agriculture more resilient. Um, but ultimately, what this, this lifting boat of development will do is create that community, that system, and that national resilience, those safety nets that need to exist. At, those at the community level, those safety nets are about livelihoods. Um, how dependent on that community, uh, how dependent is that particular community on agriculture? If there's a crop failure, can the community take care of itself even with the crop failure because there's other sources of livelihood, other sources of income? Um, do local markets fail to provide food? When those local markets fail to provide food, that's where you've got the catastrophe, and that's where there really needs to be something coming from outside of that community to support. But that doesn't always need to be the international humanitarian response that we're used to. In a more sophisticated, more developed economy, there can be domestic relief systems, and obviously with places like Nigeria where you have a, a middle-income country, that's not an unrealistic thing to think about. There's also been some very interesting work done within the global development space um, in areas like insurance. Um, there's a product that I, I looked at last year um, on grazing insurance for pastoral um, herders for livestock. Um, very, very interesting global development products that provide those, uh, those protections and that social safety net even where it's hard to provide. Um, and finally, what's the ability of that country and of that national economy um, to absorb those internally displaced people? Because when you do have that freak wave, there are going to be internally displaced people. Um, and the ability of the country to, um, to deal with that is, is quite uh, important. I, I 
find the relationship between global development and humanitarian relief um, useful to think about in terms of a, a metaphor of a fire station. Um, it's very, very costly to build a fire station, to, to buy fire trucks, to put fire hydrants on every block, um, to pay your salaries of your firefighters, to run your 911 system. All those pieces are expensive, and local communities anywhere in the world debate whether it's worthwhile. But when there's a house fire, um, that house fire um, could either be localized in the room or the house that it's in, or it could spread to its neighbors. It can take out a community, a block, a city, a forest. Um, and that preparation that's put in place um, by investing upfront can be much, much, much less than the destructive power <clears throat> of the catastrophe happening afterwards. Corinne asked the question, why should we care? Why should we invest in development? Um, I think she's right. There's a humanitarian argument that it's the right thing to do. There's an economic argument um, of avoided cost, but also building prosperous trade partners. And there's a national security, a national security argument of avoiding failed states and avoiding war. But when you compare those, those three things together, those costs, you can think of development in millions of dollars of cost. You can think of humanitarian relief when there is a catastrophe in billions of dollars of costs. And if there has to be a military engagement because of a failed state, you're talking about trillions of dollars of costs. So the investments in development really, really pay off when scaled against massive humanitarian relief or military intervention. And I think all of us would agree that that investment is worthwhile. Thank you so much, Eric. I, I, the maps are super helpful. I'm a, I'm a visual learner, so I need to see things. I also think it also emphasizes your point and that you can't lump these all together. It's easy to say four famines is kind of a good advocacy tool, but um, they're very different situations and require different responses. Um, I just have a few questions because I really want to get to the audience, but Alex, I want to start with you. You know, you talked about how we, we've had this 95% reduction and that this famine looks different than in many years past, but, and you've spent your whole career studying famines. Do you have hope at all that we could ever get to 100% reduction? I think it's, it's perfectly feasible. Um, I think the, um, by the way, I, when I say freak wave, freak wave is multiple causes coming together. It can't just be one. And, but the, the, I, I think we need to attend to the freak waves. And here, there's, there's an interesting thing that, Eric, you touched on that I think needs to be brought out, which is that the funding model for disaster response is medieval. It's basically like, you know, we're a donor, we're a, you know, and there are a bunch of beggars lined up inside, outside the church, and we will give a few coins here and there if we like their faces until we've run out. And... It, 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 it is the most rudimentary financial system in the world. You know, has the humanitarian system never heard of insurance? And in fact, the, the Center for Global Development and Stefan Durkon, who is um, chief economist at the UK Department for International Development, have written a couple of reports and books on insurance. And the idea, and, 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 and an example of how um, automatic or, or very propitious response can work extraordinarily effectively is Ethiopia in 2015, where 18 million people were in level three. The Ethiopian government responded with $500 million put into the emergency the response in um, 
just two, three weeks after this became clear in, in, in September, October of 2015, before the international community could respond, which it then did. But the fact that that was that immediate response made it possible, highly professional response as well, the Ethiopians really know how to do this, made it possible for a, 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 a crisis that in numeric terms matches the numbers of people affected today not to develop into a famine. There was only a 28% increase in, 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 in the price of food, no measured increase in, in, in mortality. Very, very good strategic investment by the Ethiopians. If you look, there were a lot of riots across the country that, that year, major protests not in the areas which were drought affected and where there was humanitarian relief going in. Had that not happened and had the price of food gone up three, four hundred percent, God knows what might have happened. Very canny response by them, but saved a lot of lives. Um, and if, if there were to be an automatic insurance-based response based upon assessments of aridity uh, on, of whatever, that could become the, the common way of responding instead of, um, instead of the, the, the extraordinarily ad hoc and by definition very, very slow uh, response that we have now. So that's one thing that could be done. The other is, is um, stopping famine being, starvation being used as, as a weapon of war. And, and that is a political action. And, 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 and all it needs is, is political will and um, pressure from audiences such as this to say to our allies, it's not the enemies, it's not the North Koreas we're concerned about here, it's our own allies, the Saudi Arabias, the UAEs, um, uh, and until a few years ago, the South Sudanese who, 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 who were doing this. Well, since you brought up political will, I go straight to Corrine. Um, in terms of, you know, you talked about how politics is at the heart of everything. And you also talked about the importance of resilience and, and how one thing that we can do is sort of strengthen that relationship between government leaders and its people. Um, to me, the political will and the strengthening of governance, it, to me, goes back to diplomacy. And so I'd like to hear a little bit on just your thoughts on and specific to U.S. or not, but just what's the role of diplomacy in this, whether that's um, having to do with building up leaders and, and building political will, whether it's criminalizing, but just what's the role of diplomacy in this? I mean, I think with respect to what we're talking about here, which is the role of development, I think one role of diplomacy is it has to be backed up. Um, development programs and development uh, investments, especially in this sector, um, governance, peace building, often have to be backed up by diplomacy. And so what you see, um, and I'm going to come back to Somalia, but when you have a forward-leaning um, ambassador and the State Department is being very forward-leaning in terms of, of trying to get an ambassador and diplomatic presence back into Somalia, um, they're really able to play an instrumental role in, um, in addition to our programs which are happening at the community level um, and which are happening at the federal level, um, having the ambassador engage with the federal government and the regional governments, for example, um, because uh, a lot of the issues that need to be resolved um, have to do with consolidating the federal arrangements um, in Somalia right now. So the diplomacy, I think, has to be aligned with the development programs and really back it up. So I think that's one. Um, and then I think, um, you know, there are, there are problems that can't be solved by development, and I think acknowledging and understanding the limits of development, obviously.
obviously is important. Um, and so, uh, you know, we're facing a number of crises right now where it's hard to see how we, we move forward and progress from where these situations are right now without a strong diplomatic engagement. Um, and um, in all cases, consistent, high level, um, on the ground, uh, ambassadors, but as well as Washington. Um, and so I think, um, you know, the, the diplomatic piece in the here and now is critical. Um, so I think those are probably the two most important roles. Eric, I'm going to open it to say if you, one of you have any points you want to add to the two questions I already asked, but, but also just more broadly, um, you know, you spoke about sort of how development does things like market linkages and kind of the agriculture component, which of course is my interest. Um, can you give just some more concrete examples? Maybe talk about when you were in, in Nigeria a few weeks ago, but to help our audience understand that's maybe not in our development bubble of what kind of concrete examples of development programming and how it really can build up resilience um, to what these kinds of shocks are. Sure, let me, let me take the first part first. and. Um, to the question of, of the diplomatic role, I think that the diplomatic role is, is absolutely essential, and I think we're, we're seeing right now a lack of diplomatic engagement that needs to happen to, to work on these conflicts. But we've also got to remember that alongside that diplomatic role, it's, it's really important to have those development investments that are often much, much longer term. The development engagement, uh, the, the diplomatic engagement has to happen and has to happen in a strong way, um, but you can't engage briefly with a situation and then disengage um, without making those longer term development investments. So um, that's what I'd have to add to that. The examples of the, um, what kind of development work can improve the agriculture in a country um, that can keep that country from being in a food insecure situation. Um, let me use the example of the, the work that we did in Nigeria that I, I visited just a couple weeks ago. Um, in that country, the, um, much of the agriculture is, is done on a, a small holder basis. It's, it's very small farmers. Um, in some cases subsistence, in some cases you know, kind of local market connected, but there's very little connectivity between the, um, those growers and larger scale markets or larger scale agriculture. And um, that means that their ability to invest in production techniques um, that get larger scale production is very limited. So um, as you can connect those farmers into you know, what we call the, the modern, although that's a word I think all of us hate, um, but the, uh, the broader economy and allow them to sell their products at, at particular grades that are needed um, into processors, into um, packagers that can get things um, out in the broader market, that can allow them to adopt new technologies, new seeds, new ways of, of tilling or irrigating. Um, that can make their crops more resilient, that can get them more productivity for, per hectare, and very often can get multiple crop cycles um, in a year. And in a place like Nigeria, achieving um, a second or a third crop in a year um, can be astronomically changing um, both farmers' incomes, but also the amount of food that's produced in that local economy that, um, that helps uh, for food security situations. So that's one of many examples of things. Many of them have to do with technologies, many have to do with improved seeds or um, improved irrigation, but um, 
generally that, that connectivity into the, the market economy is, is one of the major interventions that, uh, that global development can, uh, can undertake and really making that whole food system work effectively. Thank you very much. I want to go ahead and turn to the audience now and take questions. We'll have some microphones that come around. I hope to do two rounds. So raise your hand if you have a question. I, I want to preface this to say we're not looking for, fourth, for a fourth panelist. So do introduce yourself. Um, let me know if you have a question directed a specific um, of, of our speaker, a specific speaker, or feel free to make it more broadly. Who has questions? Raise it right here. Right around, do you see? Yeah, there we go. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Hi, my name is Yeshim with the United Nations Development Program. Thank you so much for this organization. It's really um, fantastic to see different perspectives. And for the person on the ground, they don't care if you're a development actor or a humanitarian actor or if you're part of a political spectrum. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the person who's on the ground suffering actually doesn't care about these distinctions. So it behooves us to talk about mm -hmm. these together. So thank you very much. My question is to pretty much all the panelists about um, your observations or expectations from the international architecture, the um, new way of doing business, the new way of working, which follows, I guess, the principles of the New Deal after Somalia and, and how you see that um, on the ground evolving. And just I can't help but add, um, in terms of the development programming we do, which in humanitarian context, um, the importance of making sure to maintain state functions that are actually there, even if they're minimal. And Yemen is, is one of those cases where we're working with the World Bank to make sure that the state systems for assistance to making sure people have cash um, are, are operating, such as the social fund. So I wanted to highlight that that's equally important. Thank you. Great. Thank you so much. Other questions? Come right here, the, the, the man in the blue shirt. Yes. Hi, no award. Uh, I just had a question to play off of Mrs. Flowers' uh, point about diplomacy and development. I was wondering, when you talk about the international community, uh, what exactly are you referring to in terms of the response? Should that be through individual countries, through the United Nations, through trade organizations? How do you believe that this response to these famines should go? Thank you. Over here, yes. Erica Hovania, I'm with the African Risk Capacity, and we do natural disaster risk insurance for African governments at the sovereign level, so I was happy to hear the panelists that, uh, in support of that. One of the things that we're doing, actually, is opening up a pilot project to help to allow humanitarian actors to use our insurance products also to fund part of their responses to natural disasters um, and to capitalize on the savings that you get from early intervention. But actually, my question was specifically for Alex talking about um, starvation as a war crime. And I'm wondering, um, are there, has that ever been used it already in a war crime prosecution? Or are there specific actors that are advocating for that, organizations? How is the um, advocacy behind that shaping up, or is it brand new? Right, let's take one more question. Right here in the back, the man in the green shirt. Fantastic, thank you. Hi. Um Ben Phillips from Child Fund International. Um, great presentations, all of you. Think. I'm just really intrigued by this concept of resilience. I mean, it's one of the things I'm tasked with in my organization is trying to develop our resilience programming more. And it's kind of interesting, because on the one hand, I'm you know, both during this discussion and previously in discussions with other people, to some degree, any successful development can build resilience. I mean, if I have higher income, I have some savings in the bank, I am better able to withstand any type of 
shock that might happen. So, you know, to what degree when we say we want to build resilience or do resilience programming, is it something new or different or is it something that, you know, we just want to do good development and, and do it well and, and keep doing it or maybe some of both? It's a very good question. It's one I ask all the time, too. <laughs> so why don't we just start to go down and I'll plug in anything that gets missed. Well, let's start with you, Alex, and we'll go all the way down. You can answer what you wish. Let me respond to two very briefly on, on the international architecture and the New Deal. I think there's a lot of, of, of goodwill and a lot of professionalism and a lot of effort going in the right direction. But I think that um, it, it, it is struggling not only against the, the problems that are inherent in these countries, but also factors that are coming from above. And the, and, and, and the main one, and Somalia is actually a, a remarkably good example, is the way that external actors pour money into what in local parlance they call political budgets, which, are, which is money that does not need to be accounted for, which is payment for political services, the most naked form of transactional politics. And with the GCC dispute, the Qataris and the Turks and the Saudis and the Emiratis have been pouring money in and or withholding money because they want particular Somali players to be on their side. And this type of political marketplace uh, bargaining actually actively, un very actively undermines the institutional development. And unfortunately, the, the legitimization of this type of, of um, deal-making as the ultimate form of politics is also coming from this city. And so I think we, um, that's part of the, the, um, the challenge that we face. In terms of, of, of uh, the question about the, the, the criminalization of starvation, uh, it was striking at the Nuremberg tribunals. The evidence or cases of the use of starvation uh, in, in Auschwitz, um, in the siege of Leningrad, were brought by prosecutors. That, they were either ignored or not accepted by the judges on the grounds that, at that time, starvation was uh, a legitimate form of, 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 of war. And in the case of the, the Auschwitz, uh, where many people died of starvation, the, uh, the, it was an evidentiary argument. The argument was, we cannot prove that the actions of so-and-so caused the death by starvation of so-and-so. There are many other factors that could have been involved. Um, there was also a political reason, which was that the, the Allies, the British and the United States, during World War II had also used blockade. And even actually, uh, in, in the last stages of the war against Japan, the US Air Force, in blockading the harbors of Japan, anticipating the war would go on, of course, it, went, it was brought to a close more quickly than, than, than was anticipated, that operation was called Operation Starvation. So it is not surprising that the, the Allies um, did not want to press, prosecute, uh, prosecute for starvation. Now, subsequently, there have been a couple of cases. One was in the, the Yugoslav tribunals, where the, the commander responsible for the siege of Sarajevo was at one point going to be prosecuted for starvation. But the, the prosecutor interpreted it very narrowly as a crime of extermination. And because, again, that was not possible to prove that the particular actions had led to the, the deaths of particular individuals, they found it easier to take other routes. 
And then in the case of, of Cambodia, the extraordinary chambers of Cambodia, just recently there was a lot of pressure to say, oh, this, is, this is the exemplary case where we can bring starvation as a crime against humanity. But it wasn't done. And, and again, it was because the, 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 um, the prosecutors weren't sure whether they should prosecute starvation as a crime of extermination or a crime of persecution, and they thought, well, we can get these people on, on, on simpler charges. So it's, it strikes me that what's needed is, is not so much a um, new law, but a campaign to say, well, starvation is is, is illegal, and, and it's illegal in many ways, as extermination, as, 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 as persecution, as cruel, as the infliction of unnecessary harm. It's, 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 it's prohibited under the uh, revised protocols, the 1977 protocols of the, of the Geneva Conventions. But let's, let's just make it a headline instead of making it the, the small print, the footnotes. And that requires, that requires political action. That requires people to stand up and say, starvation at any time is, is, is prohibited, including by our friends. Thank you, Alex. Corrine, especially address the New Deal. The New Deal as well as the resiliency question. Um, so on the New Deal, I mean, my perspective on that is where the New Deal goes from here depends on whether there's high-level um, political buy-in and support for it. And so whether that's this particular framework, whether it's a different framework, unless it's driven and through U.S. leadership or, or just global-level leadership, um, where it's getting hung up from my perspective in implementation is simply that there just isn't the sufficient level of buy-in. I think one, one exception is, is Somalia. Um, although even there, you know, it could probably be implemented um, um, better than it is being. So I, I think it really depends on whether, uh, whether or not there's high-level political buy-in for it um, and for the principles. Um, I would also just mention that um, in addition to criminalizing uh, violations of, of international humanitarian law, and it's also the, there are uh, in, in sanctions prongs and in the UN Security Council, obviously, um, human, blockage of humanitarian assistance is included um, in a lot of country sanctions um, prongs. So that's not criminalizing, but it is kind of a first step um, to build on. Um, and, and then the question about resilience. Um, so resilience, I think, um, I think you're right. I think global development, by definition, is striving to build resilience, sustainable systems. Um, but I think the difference with the current push um, to focus specifically on resilience is to do it really more deliberately, more deliberately um, to focus those in investments specifically in the regions and the countries that are most vulnerable um, and to really be more strategic about doing that, um, as well as to protect the development gains that agencies are making across the board. So it's a deliberate effort to also protect by, from black backsliding um, and to, to uh, secure those development investments. So I think it, it's taking resilience to the next level. Um, so. Eric, as well as any final remarks. Sure. Just a couple things to add. Uh, I would second the, the point to make sure that we're maintaining and not 
not disrupting or destroying existing state functions when we get into this humanitarian emergency situation, because they're going to be critical coming out of the crisis as well as within it. Um, I would add to that, though, um, the same goes for the private sector. Um, I think the private sector can be extremely vulnerable in humanitarian emergencies, and that private sector is also going to be critical to coming out of that humanitarian emergency. Um, one of the, the cases I mentioned where we've done a lot of work in agriculture in Haiti, and Haiti's a very, very difficult place um, to improve agricultural productivity because it's a place that has frequently been inundated with uh, disaster, and that disaster has often come with inundations of assistance that disrupt that market economy. And it's, uh, there was a point in time that no seed importers would import seeds into Haiti because they were being distributed for free all over the place. And being able to get consistent investments in agriculture in that kind of environment can be very, very difficult. So I, I think it's important to remember not to disrupt this, those existing state functions, but also not to disrupt the, uh, the private sector and, and allow that private sector to, to rebuild as you come out of the crisis. Um, the other place I would, I would add is in the question of resilience. I, I agree. I think resilience is a, a squishy topic that's hard to get your head around. That's why I really broke it down into this kind of household and farm level resilience versus the, um, the community systematic and national level resilience. I think there's, there's another way to look at it a little bit. And I, I, I think Corrine's right that the, the sophistication of how resilience programming has targeted the, the parts of um, the system and the parts of society that are vulnerable, that's, that's critical. But there's also a, there's a scientific resilience of how can you actually make the, the agriculture, how can you actually make the, the produce more resilient to these weather shocks? Um, there's also this systematic resilience, and I think that's, that's equally important, the questions around um, domestic social safety nets in the country, the, the questions around disaster risk insurance. Um, I think those areas of systematic insurance are things that um, we're going to see great advancements in uh, many of the developing countries in the world in the, um, in the coming years, and they're really, really critical because that's what's going to make the res resilient society, not just the resilient farmer. Um, and ultimately, they're both important. Let's give a huge round of applause for our panelists. congressional champions for international aid. To be frank, he's one of the few Republicans on the Hill that really understands that the U.S. is at its best 
When we employ all three Ds, that's referring to defense, diplomacy, and development. Senator Young, thank you um, for your understanding of why it is in America's interest to address global hunger and poverty, for defending the international affairs budget, and for seeking action to save lives. Well, thank you. Uh, I want to thank Kimberly for your leadership and, and CSIS and all those who helped make today's event possible, and, and all of you, of course, uh, who uh, toil in the trenches, some uh, with, uh, with great fanfare, other, others uh, in the shadows. Uh, to ensure that uh, we increase uh, stability, that uh, we care for the world's uh, most needy, and, and I look forward to partnering with you in these efforts moving forward. Um, Kimberly, you assembled an impressive array of panelists here today, and I caught the tail end of that. I just came from a briefing on Capitol Hill regarding Afghanistan and North Korea and the path forward there. And um, so apologies for being late. I'll make an effort to compress my remarks, knowing that the only thing standing between all of you and your reception is me. And, and that's a bit of an unenviable position. But um, the world, as everyone here knows, confronts the worst humanitarian crisis since World War II. Northeastern Nigeria, Somalia, South Sudan, and Yemen. Um, and these four countries alone, as World Food Program Director, exec, Executive Director Beasley testified on, in July, about 20 million people are at risk of severe hunger or starvation. In Yemen alone, an estimated 17 million people are food insecure, and almost 10 million people are in acute need of humanitarian assistance. So to put that number in perspective, and I know a number of people are watching this via webcast, 17 million is almost three times the population of Indiana. That's a big deal for this U.S. Senator from Indiana. That's 17 million men, women, and children who don't know where their next meal is coming from. Exacerbated by malnutrition, Yemen also continues to suffer from the world's worst cholera epidemic with more than 600,000 infected and more than 2,000 deaths. Now, what makes the humanitarian crises in Yemen and the three other countries so heartbreaking is the fact that, to varying degrees, the humanitarian crises are man-made and preventable, exacerbated by armed conflict and deliberate restrictions on humanitarian access. We've seen attacks on humanitarian personnel, an insufficient global response to the funding needs, and many man-made impediments to the delivery of humanitarian assistance. Take the actions of the Saudis in Yemen, for example. In addition to impeding the flow of humanitarian assistance into Red Sea ports, the Saudi-led coalition deliberately and precisely bombed cranes in the port of Hodeidah, that were critical to the delivery of humanitarian supplies. They bombed a World Food Program warehouse, and they've, since January, prevented the delivery of replacement cranes. The Saudi-led coalition has also placed limitations on journalists entering Yemen, making it more difficult for the media to portray the dire and urgent conditions there. Now let me briefly turn to why the international community should help. It may strike many of you as, as self-evident, but um, the American people need to know. 
When we see such suffering on, on such a grand scale, it's tempting, I think, for some to feel overwhelmed and to allow that feeling to devolve into a sense of resignation and apathy. Now again, I, I don't think those of you in this room are likely to fall prey to that tendency. But allow me to explain why I believe such a response would be a mistake for the United States and our international partners. First, I believe the international community, of course, has a moral imperative to do all we can to help. We've been blessed with much, and America is at our best when we lead by example and assemble international coalitions to do good. I recently had dinner with Bono. I love the beginning of that sentence. <laughs> and, and, and Bono told me of, of a conversation he once had with Warren, Warren Buffett, and, and he said, you don't always need to appeal to American sense of, of morality, though they will respond to that from time to time, but appeal to their sense of greatness. We're a great country when we lead by example and assemble international coalitions to do good. Now, in addition to this moral imperative, I believe we also have a national security interest to do all we can to help. Once again, consider Yemen. The crisis in Yemen is not only a humanitarian catastrophe, but it's an increasing national security threat. Most Yemenis don't want to be puppets of Iran, and they don't want to join terrorist organizations. Yet there are concerns that Yemenis at risk of starvation may be willing to do what's necessary to feed their children, including turning to Iran or joining terrorist groups like Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula or ISIS. This dynamic increases the threat to Americans and our allies and heightens further the sectarian nature of the war, making the conflict there all the more intractable and peace all the more elusive. As David Beasley, the executive director of the World Food Program, testified this summer, quote, whether you're dealing with extremist groups or terrorist groups, when mothers or fathers or families can't feed their children in these, these extremist areas and they don't have access or opportunity to leave, then they have no choice but to turn to what's available to them. And so when the United States provides the leadership to make certain that these families, mothers and fathers can feed their children, they don't turn to extremism. They don't turn and yield to terrorism, unquote. So I've tried to use my position in the Senate and on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee to fulfill this moral imperative to help, to help the suffering and the vulnerable and to protect our national security interests. Working with my partners, many who are represented here in this room, I've used bipartisan letters, meetings, legislation, and a hearing to raise the visibility of these crises and to call for urgent action. Now the challenges are daunting and progress has been slow, but I'm pleased that on August 9, the UN Security Council unanimously passed a statement on the humanitarian crises calling on all parties to respect international humanitarian law and permit unhindered access for humanitarian assistance to all areas. That unanimous vote was a significant and positive step, but given the severity and the urgency of the humanitarian crises, this statement is obviously not enough. We must see tangible steps by all parties 
to put words into action. Turning now to our priorities going forward. In the short term, I believe we must focus on three things, funding, access, and of course, resolution of the conflicts. Responses to the humanitarian crises remain unacceptably underfunded. For example, according to the United Nations Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, the Yemen Humanitarian Response Plan for 2017 is only 44% funded. We see similar shortfalls elsewhere. While I'm proud of the role the American people and our Congress has played in helping to fund the humanitarian responses, some of our partners can and should do more. Second, humanitarian access remains a leading challenge. The international community must speak with a clear and unambiguous voice. Combatants must end attacks on humanitarian personnel and facilities, and countries should stop using food and medicine as weapons of war to gain political advantage or leverage. Deliberately attacking humanitarian personnel and facilities and impeding humanitarian relief to areas not under a combatant's control are clear violations of customary international humanitarian law. They must stop. When countries or combatants fail to respect these clear humanitarian standards, I believe the U.S. government should lead an international effort to hold offenders accountable. In that spirit, I was especially pleased to see Administrator Mark Green's pointed comments during his recent trip to South Sudan and following his meeting with President Kiir. Finally, as I've said, each of the four famines are man-made and preventable and driven largely by conflict. We must address the conflicts in each of these countries that have caused or exacerbated these humanitarian crises. Now I realize this is easier said than done and will require persistent and comprehensive diplomatic efforts at the UN, here in Washington, and in capitals around the world. Successfully advancing each of these three priorities will require U.S. international engagement and leadership, as well as an empowered and well-resourced Department of State. So in conclusion, I want to thank CSIS and you, Kimberly, once again, for all your leadership and for allowing me to participate here in today's event. I also want to thank each of you who took the time to come and join us via webcast. And I know many of you have dedicated years to addressing the kind of humanitarian crises we discussed today. Thank you. These humanitarian challenges are enormous. The suffering is great. I am confident that working together, we can continue to do good and make a positive difference. Thanks for letting me be a part of it. Thank you so much, Senator Young. We need a whole lot more of him on Capitol Hill. So let's have a reception. Um, I want to urge you during this time um, to really talk and network as well as if you have further questions for the speakers, please continue to engage. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us for another curated conversation from CSIS. Tune in next week for more, and remember, you can explore all of our events online at CSIS.org.